Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 30 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have a very special show lined up for you today. We are back. It is our 30th special edition having had the summer off. The structure is different than usual for today's edition. I invited James Tripp Anthony Jackwin and Gary Turner back as my guests to Hypnosis Weekly. The brief was to simply ask the others a question about their therapeutic work uh, in relation to hypnosis and its application, and then to discuss it. Each of us took the reins for one segment each, so there are four discussions offered up here this week, and boy, I think you're in for a real treat. None of us knew what any of the discussions were going to be, with the exception of my own, as I'd used it as an example when explaining what I wanted to do with this edition of Hypnosis Weekly when I first approached the guys. At one point, um, you know, I must confess that I was actually so engrossed in one of the answers that were being given that I'd not given virtually any thought to, to my own answer. I do want to extend my sincere thanks and utmost appreciation to Anthony, James and Gary for, for their time, their enthusiasm, their commitment. Um, they are professional peers. They're also real leaders. They are incredible minds and people that I consider to be friends. Prior to recording each of the sections, we had a good laugh, there's plenty of banter, and if only I could share with you all some of the amusing instant messages that were being circulated while we were recording, I think it would give you more of a sense of how much fun recording these sessions were for me. I, you know, I'm still amazed that Gary managed to keep any semblance of composure after he had referred to himself as a tool in one of the sections, and Anthony had instant messaged us regarding it. I know I had to muffle my own guffaws at the time. I think you'll notice a distinct contrast in styles from all of us. I think you'll notice that we also have a lot in common, as well as some fundamental differences. Even when we do agree on particular points, the, the nuance and the way each individual communicates it gives you an idea of the place that they come from, and that dynamic fascinates me. Please note, this was a group call that we recorded, and there was some slight unavoidable noise and disruption on occasion. As I say at the beginning of every single episode of Hypnosis Weekly, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. There'll be no hypnosis in the news section this time round or our usual hypnosis fact. They'll return in next week's edition. There'll be links to the websites of today's guests, should you wish to explore their work and their contributions to this field further, um, over at the episodes page on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle, .com. Let's get on with it, shall we? For now, get comfy, my friends. Turn up the volume, sip on your tea. 
enjoy this week's special anniversary edition of Hypnosis Weekly, divided into four distinct sections. So, as I've been discussing, I'm delighted to have with me today James Tripp, Gary Turner, Anthony Jackwin. Um, our first discussion and question is going to be posed by myself. And that, that discussion, that, 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 that the questions that I'd like to pose to our guests and that I'll be offering up a response to myself is, do you have a pre-talk or do you give psychoeducation to your therapy clients, your change work clients? And if so, why? And what do you do? And if not, why? And is there anything that you do instead? So, um, I'm, I'm, Gary, uh, can I ask, can I pose that to you first of all? Of course you can. Um, hi, Adam. Hope you're really well. Hi, guys. Uh, and hello to the listeners, of course. Uh, yes, I, well, I don't do a pre-talk. Um, I actually very rarely actually mention hypnosis as a word, uh, even if I'm using classical hypnosis, purely because I find it not really necessary. Instead, the uh, psychoeducation, as you term it, that I gave my, uh, that I give my clients is all based on how they've learnt to be the way that they are, um, the way that they behave in the present, and what we can do to actually change it. So I explain. Um, I suppose it's um, loosely based, or rather, more a vastly expanded version of the Beck um, behavioural um, um, cognition model um i basically explain about how we're biomechanical stimulus response machines uh how we act in the present based on the experiences of the past uh the mm. expectations of the future all carried on the chassis of our bodies uh, i then go to explain how our behavior is shaped from these three sides uh, i give examples uh, usually on the, the subject that the, the clients come to see me with of how they can change the past, change the future, experience it differently in the present. Also, the uh, uh, the, the, the bodily, the physiological, uh, the biological uh, actions that can dictate behavior as well. And I, I tailor it at the level of the client that I've got. For example, the 11-year-old um, client that I had this morning, uh, I took it at the level of an 11-year-old, whereas if I've got a biochemist there, I'm in a realm of geekdom. Um, so, yeah, I, I basically help them understand with examples how they've learned to be that way. And then I give them examples of how they can learn to be completely different. The overall aim of doing it is to let them know that they can short circuit every single psychological intervention there is just by imagining being the person that they want to be in that situation. And the moment they get to realize that, hey, your imagination is your behavior, then there's no need to uh, um, uh, come see anyone for therapy again. And they're on their own two feet and up and running. So my aim of my psychoeducation is to give education and knowledge and experience to let them stand on their own two feet. So they're, they're up and running and unfortunately not needing me. So that's what I do. That's, that's the bare bones right. of my approach. Great, great. Thanks very much, Gary. Um, um, can I um, ask James for your, your response, your answer? Um, yeah. Uh, it was interesting listening to Gary um, because I think there's probably some overlaps and there's probably some differences as well. 
the first thing I'll say is I don't do, I don't think in terms of pre-talk mm. because that kind of implies that, well, we're going to do the actual proper work at some point and this is just some kind of setup for that. And my view is when I'm working with people, I want to be, I want to be starting impacting them towards them shifting, shifting their consciousness, if you like, shifting their understanding of things, starting to see things differently about themselves and their world right from the get-go. Now, if you take, um, I was actually, I went to get my hair cut the other day somewhere I haven't, don't normally go because my regular barber was out of town and my backup barber was also on holiday. <laughs> uh, so I, I went in somewhere randomly and said, look, I need a haircut. And the usual question came up. She said, uh, you off, you off work today? Day off? That's the usual question. I said, well, I'm self-employed. So depending on how you look at it, I either have a day off every day or I'm working all the time. You know, it's, it's a matter of perspective. And she said, what do you do? I said, well, I'm, uh, I'm sort of a hypnotherapist. <laughs> now, I, I pinched that from Darren Brown. I'm sort of a hypnotherapist. He used to say I'm sort of a magician or I'm a sort of magician uh, because it sort of says it gives an idea but then takes the idea away. Mm. And then so what, she said, what do, you, what do you mean you're sort of a uh, hypnotherapist? I said, well... I help people make changes in their lives, but I do it a bit differently from how most hypnotherapists do. And I, I kind of just started in with various metaphors and things, because instead of me explaining, there was no point. So I, I just started in as if I would with a client, with my early psychoeducation stuff. So psychoeducation is a term I like a lot. And so far as I'm concerned, all the work I do is psychoeducation. All of it is. It's 100% psychoeducation. If I do a process, it is in the service of psychoeducation. And what I mean by that is I believe that everybody is always making the best decisions given their understanding of the situation. Another way of, doing, of saying it is, is people, there's only one reason people ever do anything because it seemed like a good idea at the time. Right? That's it. And the reason people do what they do, the way they respond, the way they respond is, is due to how they are seeing the situation and seeing themselves in the situation, due to the sense they're making of themselves in that situation. And that is what dictates their experience, their responses. And the only place anything ever changes is when they see themselves differently, when they understand themselves or the situation differently in some fundamentally different way. And then they will have a different experience. So it's education in the sense of shifting their understanding. Now, I, I like the term in some ways. In other ways, I don't like it. It's, it's implying that, right, I'm going to educate you. There's one right way of seeing this and whatever. I want to invite people to see things for themselves rather than take my word for things. That doesn't make any difference. An intellectual mind shift is nothing. A person understanding a theory about how they are and what they do of that makes no difference to their experience. The difference comes about when in the moment where it counts, they see things very differently. Um, and that could be automatically and unconsciously, or it might have an element of their consciousness kick-starting that, that different perspective into being. So everything I do is education-based. If I run a process, I'm using that process to point towards a different understanding. I'm not just taking them through a process like taking them through some kind of 
transformative sausage machine. You put the ingredients in one end and something comes out the other end. I'm crossing my fingers, hoping it will have some random effect on them. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be clear about what it is that I'm helping them see. Now, one, I could, you could probably guess I could talk about this all day, so I'm going to keep this very, very quick. One of the things that I do more and more and more and more, and I always go to first, is pointing to the nature of thought and experience at the very highest level, not going in at the content or the structure level, like, you know, maybe old school, you know, hypno, hypnoanalysis might go in at a content level, NLP might go in at um, a structure of, of experience and thought level. I want to go in at the nature of thought. And this is why it's very psycho-educational. Uh, mm. So people see their role in the creation of their own experience differently. They stop getting caught up in thinking that their thoughts are facts um, and therefore setting themselves up to be had by those. You know, if you think something awful is going to happen to you and you think that thought is a fact, then you're going to feel that thought. You're going to feel something awful is going to happen to me. And there's nothing you can do to change that feeling whilst you think something awful is going to happen and you believe that thought is a fact. Right? It's crazy to ask somebody to feel differently uh, about the same fact when they're making sense of it in exactly the same way, right? It's not the facts, it's the thoughts. So I, I, I kind of, I, I shifted this level. Now, just to tie in with what Gary was saying, because Gary sent, seemed like in some ways he was talking about a similar thing. Can I mention Alistair Crowley? Is that a controversial thing to mention right here? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Okay. I'm not a big expert on Alistair Crowley at all by any means, but I did read a, a book called The Three Dangerous Magi, contrasting Good Jeff Crowley and Osho. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting book. And one of the things, an idea from Crowley that I got from there, which I really like and stuck with me for many years, I think his magic system is bollocks, by the way. Um, <laughs> But the idea, I really like this idea of what he calls white path magic versus black path magic. And he said that he was a white path magician. And what this distinction points to is, is white path magic is the path of life. It's the path of creation. And black path magic is the path of death and the path of destruction. But not how you would think it is. It's death of illusion. It's death of ego. It's death of rigid perspectives. So by his understanding, Buddhist psychology is black path magic. You know, mm. a lot of Hindu psychology is, is black path magic. You're looking through Maya, the, the veil of perception, and starting to go, my God, the way I thought it was is just the way I was seeing it. So we start to kind of drop out of the illusions that have held us fast. Um, something Byron Katie said, which always struck me, was you cannot, you cannot let go of a thought. But when you see it for what it is, it will let go of you. Right? And this is black path. When you see it for what it is, when you see it as just a thought and not a fact, and you relate to it in real time, in the moment, differently, Right? You, you fall out of it. So thought, thinking, mind flow is, is very creative. It creates our experience. It also points to facts in the world that are beyond our experience. It does that imperfectly. But it creates our experience perfectly. 
So what I find is now that's Black Path. Now White Path Magic by Crowley would be doing anything like NLP stuff, new behavior generator, utilizing people's imagination, thoughts, mind flows to construct new things, new ways of being, new perspectives. So I really like that distinction because I'll use Black Path and White Path. But I go Black Path first because it's much easier once somebody understands the nature of thought and experience and has a deeper insight into that. And you can get people shifted into this quite quickly. It becomes much easier to shift their thinking, their mind flow, their creative stuff without dismissing it as just some imagination. That was a fun piece of imagination work, but this is reality. My problems are real. They're not just like in my head. They're real, right? Mm. But so, so I like to go that kind of black path thing first. So I, I, most of the work I'm doing is constantly pointing to the nature of um, thought and experience. And it's, it's about deepening people's understandings of themselves and how they create their experience, but not intellectually, not theoretically, in such a way as they see it in the moment when it's happening and it strikes them, oh my God, it's happening right now. And that's when the, the thoughts, the ideas, the narrow reality tunnels let go of them and they become free to start living those moments in different ways. So there's my, there's my mm. quick download on that one. Excellent, excellent. Thanks very much, James. Um, um, so, um, um, Anthony, Ant, um, do you have a pre-talk? Do you give psychoeducation to your therapy clients? If so, why and what do you do? And if not, why? Is there anything you do instead? Well, thanks for you two for introducing me to the word psychoeducation it's a useful one and again it's interesting listening to both Gary and James there and a lot of what James said toward the end resonated with me I've got a little phrase you might enjoy James mm -hmm. um, in terms of this kind of psychoeducation and um, seeing through the illusion if you like which is because again after that people still need to live in the world yeah. And the phrase is ignorance disappears, maya remains. That hit me quite hard a few months back, but mm. in a good way. Um, it's also interesting, not to, not I'm picking on you, James, to hear you calling yourself sort of a hypnotherapist. I thought you were long since gone and free of uh, any reference to It, it depends on the therapy. I, that's, my, that's my line for hair. Depends on the hairdresser. Yeah. Hairdresser one knows much more. Um, yeah, well, coming back to the question, you know, in a, in a, in a typical session, and let's, let's say that's a client coming to see me and booking out 90 minutes of my time, if by pre-talk, which again, I've also found to be a, a rather odd, odd term, but if by that we're referring to the stuff that's said before the sort of obvious over hypnosis begins then yeah absolutely I do a pre-talk um, and I put a lot of emphasis on it my view as I think you all know is that being hypnotized doesn't make you more suggestible that's what the evidence seems to suggest so keeping that in mind I believe we're appealing to people's innate level of suggestibility if you want to put it that way their ability to take ideas on board automatically and uh, or respond to those ideas automatically so I behave throughout my pre-talk 
or kind of have adopt the attitude that my client is already hypnotized, if you like. Um, I don't mean that from a perspective of, you know, they're hypnotized into having their problem. I mean, I behave like they're just as suggestible in the first minute of the session as they are, you know, five minutes after an induction. So I feel like I'm very much at work in this part of the session. Um, and there's a number of things that I'm trying to do. One, I guess, and it's, it's kind of going to relate to what, what I talk about in a, in a moment, um, is attend to the component parts of what is often called the therapeutic alliance. So, you know, I want to perhaps I've already asked them a question and assess their prior experience. So I may do a little bit to get rid of some mis myths and misconceptions. Um, along the way, I may kind of prime them for what's to come. I may give them some facilitative information with regard to the actual techniques and terms I'm going to use. I still use parts work, but it still seems a little abstract at times, so I might want to clarify what I mean with a couple of terms like that. But my primary objective uh, in this discussion phase is to go after the beliefs that we've uh, sort of identified when I've been asking some questions in the first part of the session. So to put it in, in some sort of practical context, I see lots and lots of smokers, I still do, I've probably seen three and a half thousand or something. And um, they often have beliefs that I feel kind of support their problem. And if they were challenged or broken, then the technique-led part of the session would, you know, is, is going to be more effective. So they may have a belief they can't do it. That's often their belief when they come in. They've tried 20 times. They may have a belief that their problem is driven by nicotine and physical addiction. They may have a belief that smoking does something for them because from their experience they feel more relaxed or they feel more confident or they solve problems at work or, or, or whatever. And I think, let's just take those three, I feel that those three beliefs can all be quite easily cracked and broken and, and uh, ignorance will disappear with regard to those things. If at the end of my discussion the person absolutely understands now they can do it, that their problem is driven by habit and association and that any value the, the, the habit seems to have provided was, was a value that they placed on it probably long after they developed the habit actually. They probably had entirely different values when they were 12, 13. If at the end of the discussion those beliefs have changed then I, again I feel like what I'm going to do is going to be more effective. To, to, put, to put it in context of a, I don't know, a, a long-standing phobia, you know, what are the beliefs that someone might have about that? Well, they may, again, believe, uh, you know, they may be unsure that they can change. I find quite often people believe that their problem is special, that it's particularly static or it's particularly bad or it's particularly weird or, or and, and they'll often, you know, say that kind of stuff at the beginning, you know, this is, you're going to think this is a bit strange. Um, I want that belief to change. I want them to understand that actually phobias are common, um, that phobias often disappear without 
any intervention at all that um, as odd as it is we can develop a phobia of anything that's precisely why they seem so odd because they can kind of get caught up with any object or uh, activity so my primary objective is to change beliefs um, I want to clarify terms and that's kind of if you like priming for the actual techniques themselves I'm kind of setting up the the change work and the whole thing if you like is peppered with fragments phrases utterances ideas that I think may just shift I often kind of put therapy into context of like shifting weights from one side of the scale to the other and and sometimes maybe it's a one gram weight maybe sometimes I say something and I I recognize that you know they're responding emotionally to that and it gives me some kind of leverage that I may be to use later on so my discussion phase is quite lengthy when it's something like uh, weight or smoking um, it could even be you know 35 45 minutes um, with something like a phobia maybe it's 10 or 15 you know it, it doesn't need to be as long and I'm sure we've all done done this work um, perhaps on the fly or impromptu now and again and we've just had to cut some of it out and we've still got results so it's tough for me to say how useful it is but for me it's still an important part of what I do and uh, you know I, I, I just I behave like they are taking these ideas on board just as readily in that phase as they are you know post induction mm. there you go um, um, thanks thanks Ant um, uh, you, you know w one of the main reasons that, that I was keen to, to do this you know I consider this to be a real a, a real celebration not just because this is an anniversary edition of the podcast but I consider this to be a real celebration because I get really excited when I listen to you guys talking um, and, and I feel quite daunted about some of the things that I'm about to say because whilst there are some some really some really fascinating parallels that are drawn there's also quite a contrast um, to that shared by but 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 by you guys that, that that I find um quite interestingly challenging before before we went live before we started recording I was just discussing this this idea with um with Gary and James um about uh, about about being stimulated by this kind of discussion um with regards to my answer um I I run through an agenda. I know this sounds rather uh, rather sober and not very sexy. Um, I run through an agenda um, of the session before before pretty much anything else, which is very typical of of the sort of cognitive behavioural approach to therapy that, that that I tend to adhere to. And this serves um, several purposes. It gives the client an idea of what's coming up, um, and it can start to dovetail our expectations for the session. But it also starts the process of educating them about the approach um, for that session and also ensures they're not guessing at what's coming up and so on it also seeds some of the key points and objectives of the session and and that that sort of links nicely into to my next point which is I then set our objectives for the session which will usually have a main central aim for that particular session I will explain how that main central aim or that objective then fits into our overall treatment plan and that session objective 
will then get measured at the end of the session, very practically measured. I'll ask the client to measure how successful we've been in reaching that goal or that objective for this session at the end, you know, how satisfied they feel about that or, or you know, you know, on a scale of zero to 100, whatever, and we'll address it if it's, if it's not fully where we want it to be. But then there's a sort of phase for me, and I realise this... Um, Sounds very, very practical, um, but there's a sort of education and socialization which tends to be inherent and gets punctuated with, um, with, with sort of mini hypnosis sessions, if you like. First of all, um, and Ant touched upon it, I want to recognize and address any misconceptions, however subtle, um, um, any, any misconceptions that could lead us apart um, um, or, 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 or or whereby the client expects something to be happening that, that isn't going to happen, for example. So any sort of misinformation or misconceptions hopefully will get addressed as a result of the education. But also the education goes hand in hand with what is referred to as socialization, you know, socializing them to this model, to this approach to therapy and to this approach to hypnosis. Now, the very first session where I meet my client for the first time, that's likely to be more extensive, that socialization and education, um, because I tend to conceptualize hypnosis as well um, at that stage, as well as conceptualizing the, the approach to therapy. Um, um, for me and the approach that I tend to adopt, it's, it's a very sober one that's quite different to what people expect when they first walk in through the door. So that becomes quite an important part of the process for me. It's important for the client to understand the underpinning rationale behind what we're doing and be able to subsequently adopt their role within that. Um, and that's important to me that they know that they're an active agent within the process as opposed to um, you know, a sort of passive recipient to, to what goes on. In subsequent sessions, then, the education may be about um, explaining the point behind what we plan to do that particular session and also helping the client to understand how it works. Um, I think this helps them to be active in the process and not just be sort of passive to the direction and the presence of the therapist. Um, so that that sort of becomes important. I, you know, Michael Yapko or even Irving Kirsch would refer to a, a response set. Um, and very often they precursor their therapy sessions or there's an inherent part of the, the hypnosis session that um, they will refer to as a response set to create a response expectancy. And what's often referred to as a response set whereby the underpinning notion of the, the therapeutic intervention or the process gets seeded. A bit like doing a warm-up before some sorts of exercise. So for some, such as Yapko, um, um, who, who has a sort of leaning towards Ericksonian styles at times, um, and might use universal metaphors or even stories. And for others, it's just a simple explanation. This is what's going to happen, and these are the reasons why. This is what we're planning on doing today. So um, um, I think I think sort of my approach as far as um, um, psychoeducation to therapy clients probably sounds a lot more sober than um, um, than 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 the rest of you guys. And um, um, but but it, it serves a number of very valuable processes to me. Um, 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 
that's that's my answer to the question. I just wanted to, to open it up before we then move on to our, our next question from one of you guys and just to open it up whether there were any other things that, that any of you wanted to add or reply to with any of our other answers. Um, there's a few things popped up for me, Adam. Yeah. When other people were talking about things, particularly when you were talking about what you, what you were talking about. I think there's... One of the things, you know, because my, my disappeared off down one reality, one of the things that I do do a lot of is work around, I would, I would have once used the term management of expectations, but there's something, something I don't like about that phrase now, I can't even put my finger on it. Um, but attitudes, client attitudes, and, and how they are showing up and how they're engaging with the session. Uh, because for me, that's really, really key. I think, you know, the, the client's attitude, not not only towards the work that we do, but towards change full stop. It's really, really important. Yeah. Um, I just literally before this call was making an audio for a client who sent me an email. I work in peculiar ways. Sometimes I make audios for clients on the fly. And, and one of his issues is he's impatient. He's got a lot of impatience. So, of course, he, he's, and he needs everything to change right now and anything less than complete change it's like oh it's not working it's no good right the, the guy's the guy's got a particular attitude which is hindering the work you know so that's a major piece that that needs to be addressed so i have an awareness for these sorts of things but one of the things i probably don't tend to do is do every piece of attitude management up ahead of time in a in a stop frame i'll start working on when something up as an issue address it then which i guess is what i'm doing with this guy right now and so it becomes ongoing yeah it, it's ongoing so you know initially i don't know about this guy's attitude because i haven't worked with him enough to know then you have to work with him for a couple of sessions that that certain features of his attitude and his engagement are beginning to show up and that seems that's a, a very good point to point time to address them and i want to make clear when i address them, i'm very 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 particular about addressing it without any judgment whatsoever. I don't want to say to the client, you're wrong, your attitude is bad, the work's not working because you've got a bad attitude. That would be a shocking thing to do. Um, so I want to make sure that when I'm assisting the client in adjusting attitude, I'm highlighting something about their current attitude, I'm doing so very, very non-judgmentally. I often say, you know, this is what's going on here, and this is a very human thing. I'll say many, many people do this. So, you know, I, yeah. that side of it for me is, is equally important as well. Yeah. Um, um, do any of you other guys have um, um, anything you'd like to add or, or ask? What I like about it is all four of us are generally doing the same thing, just in completely different ways. Uh, by listening to you three, um, what it's done is it's widened my perspectives as how I can apply it to the individual client in front of me. Um, we're all looking at educating our clients, setting up for the work ahead, um, removing objections, um, basically, basically preparing them for the changes that are required. Uh, the term that James uses that I really like is is testing their worldview. Yes. Um, so I just want to say thanks to you three for helping me see how other people work to generally do the same thing because we've all got the same target in mind, which is the uh, uh, the result for the client. So thanks. Pleasure, pleasure. Okay, great, great. Adam, um, can I ask you a quick question? Yes, about please. You 
Um, you were talking about, you mentioned there were two terms that I juxtaposed instantly in my mind, treatment plan. Yeah. And also goal for the session. Yeah. So, so that's when, when you, I guess you have a treatment plan, which implies to me, as I listen to that, that across, across time, you're like, this is where we're aiming towards across a number of sessions. Yeah. And that's going to be slightly different from what we're aiming towards in this session. Yeah. So, of course, most clients are likely to roll up, and, you, and if you said, "What's your goal for this session?" The, their ideal goal would be complete resolution. Yeah. So, so do you uh, say that's yeah, not? Yeah. So like I've that? probably yeah yeah. So just to, just to articulate that probably a bit more comprehensively, a bit more, a, a, a bit better. Um, um, prior to meeting the client, I have a fairly comprehensive questionnaire that gets sent out to them. And we have um, we have a discussion on the telephone uh, before we before we begin and just address some some sort of minor issues or discussions or if there's anything that I want to hang on top of that. So um, um, part of what part of um, the, the, the first session together, um, which I suppose some people might refer to as a as a, as a consultation session, um, um, is is we'll we'll discuss the issue. Well, you know, I will offer up a therapist-led hypotheses about the nature of their issue, what they're doing, how they're doing it, based upon the information I've elicited, um, and then we will agree upon a treatment plan. So I'll, I'll tend to give some suggestions about the direction I think it, it needs to consider going, but it is wholly agreed upon. You know, that they are very much involved in that process. Um, um, so, so then that, that overall treatment plan will get divided into component parts each session as opposed to, as opposed to necessarily attempting to take the entire issue on in a single session. There, there, there may be other times, and I realise that lots of the work that, that lots of my professional peers do um, is very capable of, of, of getting wonderful results in a single session i tend not to offer that and i tend not to have that expectation for them um, um, and unless it happens of course um and so so for me the component part will be the goal for that session which will what we we will have set so um i'm typically typically within a cognitive behavioral approach such as the one that i tend to, to lean towards um, we might be looking in one session at working on their cognitions we might on another session be looking at the the affect of the issue so the the, the the physiological and sensation component of their issue and how to manage it or deal with it and then perhaps you know working up towards a more sort of behavioral oriented session whereby we're we're going to sort of practice them taking the behaviors that are necessary and then working up to them actually behaviorally going and engaging in um, um, new activities taking action upon the stuff that we've done on previous sessions so the treatment plan would would have comprised of you know, a session that's going to deal with affect, a session that's likely to deal with cognitions, a session that's likely to look at behaviour as a, as a hypothetical example. And then our objective for each of those sessions will be related to each of those components. OK, thank you. Thank you, Adam. Um, um, so uh, um, um, we will all be back in just a few moments.
so we're back and uh, I'm going to hand over uh, the reins to Mr. James Tripp. James, over to you. Thank you very much, Adam. Um, I have a question and it's one I've been reflecting upon more and more. Obviously, people know me as the hypnosis without trance guy. And uh, I have my story behind that and how I came to see that this state that I've been taught for trance didn't seem to make any difference when it came to eliciting these deep trance phenomena. So I kind of chucked it away and got back on with directly creating the effects without going through the, what I would call the ritual of trance induction and all of this. Um, and then over time, I've come to an appreciation that there is a particular mode of mind that people might refer to as trance. And I'm going to use the term poetically rather than scientifically here. Uh, but a particular mode of mind where people sort of fall out of their thinking and into a more peaceful space. It's almost like uh, Stephen Gilligan's quite a generative trance or therapeutic trance. And for me, it's almost like when somebody's in a, in a tight, narrow toxic symptomatic trance they're in a narrow reality tunnel they have one particular perspective and they're held in the grip of one particular way of seeing things and then they can kind of fall out of that into this state of peace of mind dr les femi the head of biofeedback and neurofeedback talks about open focus versus narrow objective focus and it seems to align with what he calls the open focus state a different mode of mind maybe more right brain opened up whatever but it seems as a state of mind, and I don't think it renders people, I don't think it's associated with hypnotic phenomena or anything like that, but I think there's a different way of being more peaceful, wider bandwidth. And it seems to me that this is something that may have some, some utility and this kind of thing. And I agree with Anthony, what Anthony said earlier, it doesn't change quote unquote suggestibility. But it seems to be valued in a lot of different traditions. In meditation traditions, Ericsson was big on trance. I watched a video where somebody asked Ericsson the question, Ericsson, why did you put her into a trance? Why didn't you just tell her what you wanted to tell her? And he looked and he gave this answer, which I suspected was made up on the fly and was utter bullshit in many ways. He said something like, little uh, big girls squirm enough and little girls squirm even more. So I just needed her to be still. Right, so here's my question. This state that I'm trying to point to here, poetically with the term trance, this open focus state, this wide bandwidth, this fallen out of your thinking and perhaps into stillness. Do you make use of this in your work? And if you do, what do you see it's its functionality being what what is its role what is its purpose how are you using it for what purpose so um anyone anyone fancy jumping in with an answer to that first off okay let me um, I, I said to i said to the guys in the break um please don't choose me first because none of us were prepared for for, for james because james just i mean testament to james he just he's thought that up on the fly um um, um uh, yeah, one of the things that I would say, I, I, I would draw some parallels with some of the, the the points that you make there. A lot of a lot of the elements of of perhaps a, a trance or people's uh, people's thoughts influencing and affecting them. I tend to very often refer to that as being 
um, um, negative self-hypnosis or, or, or even um, a, a sort of neutral neutral hypnosis whereby people are influencing or not influencing themselves in a number of different ways but I suppose I've also written about um, um, and, and, and sort of been quite objectionable in the past about the very use of the term trance um, and and one of the reasons for that is because it, it tends to be I think it tends to be slightly misleading with regards to to what hypnosis is for 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 me and I don't want this to sort of get into I, I don't want to descend into a discussion about what hypnosis is and what it isn't um, um but I suppose there are some parallels to be drawn in the fact that I think hypnosis is is you know I I, I refer to it as being a um, a cognitive skill, a positive mindset of very ordinary psychological factors that are combined, whereby people adopt the role of hypnotized subject, for example. They have a certain degree of expectation. They believe that they are the one in control, that, that, that they are responsible for the outcomes that occur. And for me, um, um, there's there's a number of ways in which which I myself I myself benefit from from being in that place being in that that space you know you know not just in in hypnosis sessions formalized with my clients but when I'm out when I'm out running when I'm engaged when I, when I'm having some quiet time within my my working day which is an essential thing that I involve within every working day that I have some some time out for some quiet, for some creation, for some tuning in and, 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 and turning off stimulus and so on. So um, um, for me, it, it becomes an opportunity for the client to, to be able to organise themselves, to be able to engage their imagination and have some, some space to be able to do all of the stuff that I'm asking them to do. And so... Even though I'm, I'm sort of openly, um, I'm being objectionable about the term trance because I think it's misleading. Um, I'm, with regards to what to, to what I do and what a hypnotherapist does, for example, I, I also think that the space that gets created from an idea such as that is is, is central to effective therapy, and that's as much of a nutshell as I can put it in. Mm. Thank you, Adam. That's that's a good answer. Thank you. So, Gary or Anthony? Right. Yeah. Sure. Um, I actually rarely use uh, most almost everything that I do is waking hypnosis, conversational hypnosis. Uh, even if I'm creating hypnotic phenomena, uh, which is part of part of my question, um, I do, however, use what you would term as. Uh, fall out of thinking into personal space, uh, which could be described as a trance state, uh, even quiet time, um, uh, a know-nothing state, uh, quieting the mind down, uh, attention on nothing, attention diverted away from the work that we're doing. I use it for various reasons. Um, I guess the first one uh, is because I see that there's three things to creating therapeutic success. Um, we've got the Hebb's law, the metaphor for neurons that fire together, wire together, the actual physical um, uh, biochemical changes that we're making in that person's brain to create the effects. Um, then we've got placebo, 
we've also got the therapeutic relationship. So out of those three things, the for and out of thinking in the personal space, I would use quite a lot for the placebo effect because people have this inbuilt belief that this is kind of what's required or certain people have the inbuilt belief that this is what's required, you know, to go into a trance state, for example, um, and also uh, to give an element of therapeutic relationship because I'm giving instructions, they're following my commands um, and there's an effect that's being created the same. So I use it, this falling out of thinking in the personal space to create placebo um, and increase the therapeutic relationship. I also use it uh, for two other ways uh, that, that spring to mind straight away. The first is most therapists don't allow for um, the, the neurology to actually make the change connections that are necessary um, for us to learn uh, and for the, the learnings to be consolidated we need to actually make the, the neurons actually fire out the axons and dendrites to actually make the connections and, and make these physical changes so I can give them give my clients uh, a little bit of downtime uh, to allow diffuse thinking to take place and actually allow these connections to actually take effect to actually happen so the first one is for placebo and therapeutic relationship. The second one would be to allow this diffuse thinking, to actually allow the brain to make the connections necessary for the change to be more permanent. The third way that I would use it is when I'm working in change work, um, modern neuroscience is telling us that the most effective way to create change is to change the reference memory and there's a particular window of change that's most appropriate. So, for example, if you get them to recall uh, a memory trace, recall a reference memory, recall a time, for example, when they were afraid. Then if you give them uh, a little time, uh, up to about 10 minutes um, of uh, uh, sort of the quiet time, the falling out of thinking into personal space, time, the know-nothing state, whatever, dropping them into a trance state. What this is happening is allowing the memory trace to fade slightly. And within the window of 10 minutes to 60 minutes is when the reconsolidation process starts to take place, when the memory is saved back in a change state. And that's the effective time to actually use the change work. So if you light up a reference memory, then you wait 10 minutes, and between that 10 and 60 minute window is when the, the change work uh, should take place as that uses the, the reconsolidation process to take place. Then that increases the efficiency of the, uh, the change work that we're doing. So the, the, to, to use what you're saying, James, um, to use a trance state or to use a fallout thinking in personal space, the quiet time or whatever, I'd use it for placebo therapeutic relationship to give the time for the connections to actually physically take place. Um, or for the uh, uh, to allow the difference in the change in time uh, between the license reference memory uh, and then give that little window of the 10 to 60 minutes after that to actually carry out the change. So that's my that's my usual geeky answer for you. Thank you, Gary. Nice. Good stuff. Uh, well, you know, I certainly did the first 10 years or more of, of my therapy work using the word trance suggesting i'm going to put you in a trance and uh you know other words that could intensify that experience as you all know very well um examining the nature of hypnosis stroke trance 
resulted in everything <laughs> I thought about it falling away and all that was left was your imagined personal reality your and your relationship to that personal reality um, if you listen to the last interview I did with Adam toward the end I get into um, I guess what some people might refer to as my David Icke moment but <laughs> the, 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 the falling away process didn't really stop for me and the same kind of scrutiny and inquiry was uh, then pointed at, you know, this personal reality and this this sense of who am I? And uh, the, the blocks kept tumbling. Nothing sticks to that question, as, as you'll know, if you've ever um, pursued self-inquiry and, and asked yourself that. So... I don't use the word trance anymore, but obviously people coming to see me still bring in some expectations and I still call myself a hypnotist or a hypnotherapist. So I don't feel the need to, um, as much as I might get rid of a misconception about sleep, uh, I don't feel the need to completely undo and unpack everything because at some point I'm going to ask this person to close their eyes, I'm going to keep on talking and the process is going to begin. And I've got to say, some people, even without using the word trance or deeper, still look and exhibit all the signs of a change in state. I, I put that purely down to their expectation and the following of the, the sort of ambiguous instructions I'm, I'm giving them. Right. But in terms of the value that I think James was reflecting on, be it poetically i'm 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 still there with that and one of the, one of the things that you know i kind of got into toward the end of this this process of examining hypnosis and examining the self was to look at acceptance and commitment therapy sometimes called act and the core principles include cognitive diffusion, um, reducing the tendency to sort of constantly bring up thoughts, images, emotions, acceptance, letting them come and go. That's what that kind of means to me. Um, this awareness of the here and now that is experienced with openness and interest and so on. And perhaps most importantly, this observing self and you know in, in sort of spiritual parlance that's sometimes called the witness position or awareness and awareness is a word I'm quite happy with so you know my view right now and, and who knows it may well change is that that's what you are actually um, you're, you're definitely not your thoughts you're definitely not your feelings you're not your history. You're not what you might become. All that you can really find that is consistent is this sense of awareness. So if, if, if I had to answer the question, who am I, I would say that. Now, the, the, the characteristics of it, uh, and this is perhaps, you know, it's perhaps very obvious to people who have done lots of meditation. I, I haven't. Um, 
are an emptiness and a spaciousness and it kind of just says yes to everything there's no judgment it just looks and it watches things come and it watches things go so if I was to pin some characteristics on the, the valuable bit of a poetic trance they would be exactly the same characteristics the the state if you like that I imagine people to be in or I, or I want to kind of position my clients in these days is that of the observing witness and what I'd find is that it's common to so many of the actual techniques that I use and many classical techniques of psychotherapy not just NLP but in, in hypnosis but across the board encourage people to adopt a third person position or a witness position and at a minimum it, it, it gives you distance some distance okay. it also allows you to kind of I'd say dispassionately perhaps less passionately observe thoughts and feelings and look at you know structurally the, the, the reality of memory and identity and see that all of these things are also kind of seen and, and come and go and that you kind of remain it encourages you to be again a massively overused word but it encourages you to be present with the here and now all you're doing is being carried along by the words of the the hypnotist and you know observe uh, to, to, to become that backdrop, that continuity of, of consciousness. So, if anything, <laughs> if trance is anything, it's residing as awareness. It's taking the position, it's taking your stand as the one thing that's continuous, the one thing that is not moving. And you're much less likely then to fuse with your thoughts. You're much less likely to avoid experience. You're much less likely to evaluate and give reasons for your behavior. You just accept that reactions come and go. You, 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 you can point your automatic imagination and find, you know, uh, uh, information is, is automatically presented whether that's thinking about futures or um, I don't know it's it's for me that's what it is so 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 in a sense without wanting to contradict myself too much I still find the concept useful but what I think I'm doing is encouraging people to take their stand as that observing self as awareness and I can't really put any distinction between that and how I perhaps may have spoken about trance in the past, except for one thing. In the past, I still had the belief that one special characteristic of it was you uh, became more receptive to the ideas that were being presented. I don't believe that anymore. But I don't know if what I've just said makes any sense to you guys either. But um, that's that's really what it's about to me. The the, the characteristics of of you know drifting toward what I'd say is closer to your true nature. Some some kind of 
getting away from the, the separate self, the person, the history, the thought, the feeling, the habit, and looking at it, you know, um, it's in that it's in that nothingness that, that, that we find the answers. There you go. Thank you, Anthony. Um, you you kind of asked the question rhetorically at the end of that, if that makes any sense. And to me, it makes at least I make a lot of sense of that. It's very resonant for me in terms of um, in terms of much of where I'm at with the work that that I do at the moment. Um, Great. So so yeah, I think there's a great deal of value in this state. Forget the term trance. You know, it's just a, a way of pointing in that direction. But I think there's an immense amount of value. I sometimes look at it as a different mode of mind. And I originally started looking back in this direction as a result of the work of Dr. Les Femi, who's the head of biofeedback and neurofeedback at Princeton University. He has a book called The Open Focus Brain. And mm. he's been brain scanning people and shifting their states of consciousness for years, 30 years or so. And started getting me looking back in that direction. But that's looking at it from the outside. Then I started looking at it more from the inside. Um, from various perspectives. Gary was kind of part misquoting me there um, when I said about falling out of your thinking. And Gary was using the term personal space. I wouldn't use that term personal space. That doesn't quite sum it up for me. There's a, there's a kind of an expanded bandwidth, so to speak, an expanded sense of being whereby you get a sense of yourself transcendent from. This isn't an intellectual thing. This is an experience. And I'm doing my best to describe it. A sense of yourself transcendent of the particular narrow idea or reality tunnels that you might normally be in or operating within in any given moment. So hence the term, I, you know, I use that expression again poetically, falling out of your thinking into your ground of being or into, your, into an expanded sense of self. And it's, it's, a, it's like a, a consciousness shift or an awareness shift very very present because you can't be doing that time traveling you're doing in your mind but what if this what happened then it's, it's just like right here right now and it's very quiet and the thinking quietens right down and there's there's a real sense of presence now it seems to me that when people fall out of this state they fall into a different mode of mind and it seems that's when you have the opportunity for fresh new thinking and perspectives to come through. New ways of seeing things. If you're caught up in a tight, narrow way of seeing things, that, that way of seeing things is self-validating. So it's very difficult to move out of that. But if you can drop out of that, it's like, it's like you get in touch with everything else you are beyond what you were wrapped up in in that moment. You know, and, and maybe, you know, maybe even if I was going to go David Icke, maybe things beyond that, I don't know, and that's something I could comment on. But, um, you know, and I think it's a really useful thing, and I think one of the things that's, that's come to me a lot is I think there's a danger, there's a great value in this, in therapy, hypnotherapy, change work, coaching, whatever. But if people come to think that this is something that has to be induced in them by a hypnotist, rather than something that, that is part of who they are and how they are, that they have access to at any time. That at any time it's useful, any time they catch themselves being caught up in a narrow, toxic trance or 
caught up in their thinking, a tight reality tunnel that's limiting their options or creating pain from them, for them. That is not reality. And that when they see that for what it is, they have that opportunity to fall out of that, fall out of that reality tunnel. You know, open up the bandwidth, fall into something bigger, more expansive. And, and if nothing else, it's more present and it's more peaceful. You know, and providing, you know, there's, there's no danger that somebody's going to step out into the road and see a bus bearing down on them and, and drop into a state of peace and reflect deeply on whether or not it's a real bus. That's not going to happen, you know. <laughs> People's, people's survival systems are going to kick in when they need to, but people are living in their survival systems all bloody day when they don't need to, reacting to all sorts of imaginary situations and, and stuff. And, you know, there's a real resource base to be had in this, in this state of being that when people start to learn and connect with, my God, you know, I have, I can drop out of this and into something else. And of course, it's not always easy to do because those narrow trances, when we get pulled into them, those toxic realities, those reality tunnels, God, they seem real, don't they? You know, I often say to clients, have you ever got the wrong end of the stick? And they go, well, yeah. And I say, and didn't it seem when you had it like you had the right end of the stick? And they're like, well, yeah. You know, and that's just, that sums it up. People get caught up in these tight, narrow realities. Anthony might call it automatic imaginations. Boom, there they are. I'd call it hypnotic loops. Being able to drop out of that, fall out of all of that into a different, and it's a different way of being. And it has within it a whole different range of, of possibilities that were excluded from the previous tight reality tunnel. And that's where I think it's valuable. But I, I want my clients to start to recognize that this is something that is that it's fundamental to, to them and that they can have more ready access to in their life as it serves to do so. so that's my take could i could i just um could i just add and um, just just refer back um something that gary said um yeah. with regards to, to placebo and expectation mm. um, um a lot of the researchers that the ones that concluded that things like the hypnotic induction really did did, did very little other than um, a very negligible amount of suggestibility was enhanced according to Barber and Kirsch and so on. Yet, therapeutically, these people still continued to use inductions, um, um, for example. And that sort of ritualised notion, very often that the, the, the expectation is such that, that, that that's, it's perceived as being powerful. And so um, I, I think the, the element of, of placebo um, um, that, that Gary mentioned with regards to, to how it can sometimes be framed by, by the simple action of engaging in an induction has, has some clear therapeutic value, at least to me. Um, um, so so I, I really just wanted to re-emphasise um, 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 that point that Gary made because um, um, I wish it was I wish it was a point that I'd have made. Um, um, I, I think it was an important thing. Um, I have nothing can more I, to add, though. Can, can I just ask, Adam, with regard to the, um, that small amount of difference? Um, I, th I think it was Kirsch's research, so we put people through the SHSS with or without an induction. Um, and I, you know, I've been quite happy to reference that as showing that it made negligible difference, sort of outside the noise of uh, repeating the experiment. But I think it was Jürgen Rasmussen who 
cast a sort of finer light upon that and yes. uh, didn't brush over it and essentially said, well, yeah, it's it's much less. Uh, your suggestibility uh, or is much less um, than we might have wished for, but still more than we can just kind of overlook that point or two of difference. Are you suggesting that that point or two of difference, or were they suggesting, I haven't read Barbara's research, are you suggesting that that point or two of difference is accounted for with ritual? Well, um, I'm not just purely ritual. So, so, so just, just to, just to contextualize that a, a little bit more. I, I mean, I mean, a long time before Kirsch was, was, was writing about this barber was busy showing in the 60s barber was busy showing that you know motivational suggestions uh, w- with no context whatsoever or framing to do with hypnosis um, and just motivational suggestions um could, could very often elicit exactly the same responses um, um, um as and, and and i think you know um the idea is such that um um there's that there's no such thing as so-called hypnotic phenomena because anything any phenomena that can be elicited with hypnosis can often be elicited absolutely without it um, um, sure. um, um, can always be elicited without it um, however my own experience professionally and personally has been that the same hypnotic phenomena actually has been easier to elicit when done in conjunction with hypnosis or within the framework of of hypnosis um um, and and said to be such and very often that has been combined with the ritual so i'm i'm uh, I'm probably going to sit on the fence um i'm I'm very slightly i I, you know i i'm loathed or rather reluctant to say yes i think the ritual the 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 ritual um does add add to the yeah. efficacy of what we're doing or, or, or magnification of what we're doing. But certainly my own experience has been that very often it does. And, you know, for that reason, I do hypnotic inductions um, with all of my clients. Um, um, even when I do when I do self-hypnosis and, and to, to overcome pain when I'm running an ultra marathon, for example, I, I will have a fairly ritualized process and system that I adhere to in order to do that because I have a belief system in place that I think responds well to that and I think that you know the level of expectation that gets attached to that and and the kind of the stepping away from reality uh, uh, rather you know you the frame is such with an induction that, that that suddenly things are different. You know, suddenly there's a framework. Suddenly there's you know people's lifetime of reference is dipped into as far as um, um, their hypnosis education or understanding is concerned, and um, um, and that makes a big impact upon what then happens afterwards. So um, I'm you know I, I tend to agree with with Jürgen on that one and and I also think that um even though it's officially negligible I still do it um I still do it and 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 for me it's had it's had quite an impact um um yet you know people like James people like David Kaloff people like Barber and Kirsch have shown um um very often that, that that you know that stuff is not necessarily needed um um 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's very much open to discussion and debate. And I'm guessing a lot of it comes down to my own belief system and my own congruence with it, because if I believe heavily in it, it's likely to, inf- it's likely to affect bit of a Freudian slip there because I nearly said infect um, um, it's likely to, to, to affect the, the, the responses of that individual my own beliefs mm. in it thanks mm. thanks guys that, that they were that was great to hear those different perspectives and get the the juxtaposition of them great thank you for that James we'll be back in just a few moments <laughs> Okay, we're back, and I'm now handing the reins over to Mr. Gary Turner. Gary, over to you. Great stuff. Thanks, Adam. I, when I was asked to, to think of a question, I was thinking, what will be most benefit to everyone that's listening, uh, as well as, of course, you know, my, my own interest, because I want to get better? And the, the key question keeps coming up, especially for those who carry out therapeutic hypnosis. Um, there's, a, there's a big fear of creating phenomena or a big uh, idea that it's kind of hard to create phenomena. Yet I seem to find it easy to create phenomena because of the way that I've studied. So I want to expand my way to be even better still and to help um, all the, the therapeutic practitioners to, to not be afraid of phenomena, but to actually create more and more in their work and see the uses of it. And especially with Ant and James here, who are the, the masters I consider of, of hypnotic phenomena, it's Thanks. great to bring forward their, oh, it's great to bring forward their, uh, their ability and uh, Adam of course I don't know how you actually create your phenomena so I'm, I'm I'm vastly interested in what you've got to say as well so from my point of view um, I, I, I find it easy because I, I, I study so hard um, I mean basically phenomena I'll describe as being uh, guiding the imagination to light up the neurology to create the phenomena to make it hypnotic we need it to be non-conscious. In other words, that we create it uh, without the, uh, uh, the the understanding of that person uh, that they are actually creating it. So it's guiding the imagination to light up the neurology to create the phenomena uh, and then for hypnosis to ensure it is non-conscious. Um, for example, Anthony, I know, is very high on improving through uh, or has got the knowledge from the Colton Skills Train and Hypnotic Aptitude Chest. Uh, tests. James has got a brilliant feedback loop. Adam, I don't know how you you actually produce it yourself. My approach is quite simple. I light the neurology up because when we imagine something, when we light up a memory trace or even light up the imagination memory through using the right words, all use the same parts of the neurology as having the actual experience. So, for example, um, if you've got... uh, 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 want to create a somatic experience, um, I will light up the imagination, light up the memory trace um, to to recreate in the neurology exactly the same um, uh, chemical, neurochemical uh, reactions that create the activity. Now, the one thing to improve uh, the physical side is that when you imagine carrying out a motor movement, the cerebellum actually inhibits the final movement. So a lot of people can light up the ideas in the mind but not get the movement because the cerebellum's inhibiting that movement. That's where uh, a little assist 
can help start the movements, for example. Also, the motor cortex can only do one thing at once. Therefore, if we lock the mind around a, a, a counterthought or opposing movement, we're more likely to get that hypnotic phenomena going. Uh, for visual, for example, we can just hack into the perception of our senses. Um, if we hold the image of the thing we want in our mind, the perception of that object is increased. Uh, we naturally integrate the thoughts held in our mind with the incoming sensory input. So we can lock our mind around the idea of seeing something or not seeing something. And the top down process mixes with the bottom up process of the incoming stimulus. And we could we could we, we basically form a nice little mash from that in our mind. Um, and for hallucinations, the way our sight works is that we see um, large things before we see the detail. So if you work uh, global before specific, we have much uh, better effect. In other words, what I do is I, I, I hack into our natural processes. I, I, I hack into our perception. I hack into the way that our body actually experiences it in the first place. So as a framework, I would set expectation. I'd, I'd, I'd give them the idea. What would happen if? What would it be like if? Imagine that you could. I will then mime what it would happen to further light up their neurology. I then even may get them to rehearse it. Imagine your hand stuck. What would that be like? Just mime it. What would it be like if you role-played that to improve it? I then would work to lock the mind around the mental image of the effect I'm working to create. And then I'd use a little feedback loop of experience feeding back into mental experience that then reinforces the experience and keep that going. And I'd also hack into experience to give a physiological or sensory head start. And if people play that back, there should be quite a lot of information for you to go away and have a look at. Um, and I'd advise everyone would study perception and to study memory and how we work that. Because this is what we're doing, I believe, when we're creating the phenomena. So basically what I'm doing is looking to use imagination, use lighting of memory traces to light the neurology up exactly the same as if they were actually doing it. And then snowball from that into them actually creating it. So my question for you guys is, how would you increase your effectiveness with hypnotic phenomena? And let's start with, uh, yeah, let's start with Captain Trip. James, how would you do it? Well, that was interesting listening to your description, Gary, because I think the description I'm going to offer is going to come from a very different place. Fantastic. Um, I've never especially found uh, any neuroscience stuff or you know anything described from us i've never found that particularly useful in terms of, of of the work that i do i find it interesting but not personally that's not what i find is uh, to be the richest source to inform the work that i do now the first thing i'll say is in in the work that i do with people client work i don't use hypnotic phenomena that much I do from time to time. Uh, I use the odd arm catalepsy here and there, but it's always, again, in the service of psychoeducation. Uh, I often elicit arm catalepsy from people and then say, ask them a question afterwards. Say, let me ask you, your arm is there now. Did you want to do that? You know, and I'm eliciting the phenomenon because I want to make a point about concepts and how we conceptualize and how we backwards rationalize what really goes on at the moment. So I use phenomena in that sense, but I, I don't I don't go heavy on them. the place I end up doing phenomena most these days is when I'm teaching it, when I teach the hypnosis skills boot camp. And and the way I teach the hypnosis skills boot camp is very different from my old workshops, which used to be very 
theory-based, recipe-based, conceptual-based, all of this kind of stuff. And I don't do any of that now. I start the hypnosis. It's much more like a martial arts training. So it's just drilling stuff over and over and over again, not, not scripted stuff. And I start off the first morning. We don't use any words. It's all done non-verbally or non-verbal drills. So this is the first thing I would suggest to people is stop getting hung up in thinking there's some kind of magic formula or magic words and if you say them it's going gonna, it's gonna to work or whatever. You're dealing with something which is real time and live. You're being present with somebody and you're using all of your communication to direct their attention, lead their cognition and seed ideas, to lead them into different experiences of reality in the moment. So I start off with nonverbal communication. One of the reasons why is it really sharpens up people's intention. It really starts to have them communicate on those levels, which I think are richer and deeper than, than mere words. If people start with words. They can be in an intellectual space. That tends to draw the, cli the client, the person you're working with, into an intellectual space. That's not what you want them. You want them in an experiential space. So I would say go to being in an experiential space. Now... When I'm doing hypnotic phenomena, I'm like a mesmerist. Now, I feel like I'm working with energies. I'm not saying there are energies, but that's my reality. That's the reality I create. My friend, our, our mutual friend, Michael Perez, once said to me, when I do hypnosis, it's like I'm lucid dreaming and the client is included. And that really struck me because it so resonated with my experience. So one of the things I think I like to get people to do is start to really immerse themselves in the moment, in the experience of the moment, to stay away from extraneous thoughts that take them away from it. One extraneous thought, which comes up a lot for people, is, is it working? Is it happening? Is it, am I doing okay? And they're, they're meta-commenting instead of being really present with what they're doing. So I often, you know, I encourage people to say, look, stop asking the question, is, you know, is it happening? Start asking the question, what is happening? Become deeply present and deeply curious, you see, because the thing is that most people don't know when they're listening to hypnotic phenomena is they are bulletproof. There is nothing that can go wrong until you decided it had to be a particular way and now you're going to get upset that it's not a particular way and it means something about you as a hypnotist or a human being that it hasn't gone exactly as you wanted it to go, right? Yeah, people end up in a neurosis loop. They're trying to do hypnosis from within a trance of neurosis you know, and it doesn't help right so clear all that off the table and just start to get deeply curious about what's happening leading the person there now somebody that um somebody invited me on a rapid induction work the other week uh, and and i went along it was a very good workshop i in, enjoyed it kate bevan marks and rory zed were doing it and they did a nice workshop now there was, there was, uh, it came time to practice a hand drop induction. Now, so far as I'm concerned, incidentally, doing something like a hand drop induction, that's no different from doing a hand stick or a name anesthesia or anything. You're still using language and communication to direct attention, lead cognition and seed ideas for the purpose of leading somebody into an altered experience. I want to lead their behavior. I want to lead their mind flow. It's the same damn thing, right? Induction is phenomenon so we're doing the hand and this guy said uh he said oh you know i'll, I'll go first 
he's an old guy. He seemed to have this attitude of like, I really know what I'm doing. I'm dead good. And he did this induction and it was, it was okay. And I just went along with the ride. And I, get, I didn't give him much feedback at the end because maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. I sensed he probably wasn't going to be a guy who'd be open to feedback. So I just gave him the feedback. I said, well, you know, it certainly seems like you've done this before. He puffed up with pride. And then we switched around. And it came time for me to do the hand drop induction for him. So he placed his hand on mine, had him place his hand on mine, had him pick a point, look at this. Sleep, boom. And he, his eyes closed. And he popped back out here and he went, no, 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 not quite there, not quite there said to me I said that's what I would like to invite you to do is wherever you end up just allow yourself to be there whatever your experience just allow yourself to fully I said, okay. He said, yeah. So I set up again, hand drop, eyes closed, head down. No, no, no. See, what you need to do is, and he started to come in with the, with the instruction. I said, can I just stop you there? Can I, can I ask? I, said, I know you have experience of doing this, and I know you have a way of doing this. You know works for you. And I'm going to do this differently. What I do is going to be different how you think it should be. And what I would like for you to do is just to go with it, just to flow with it. And wherever you find yourself, just allow yourself to be there fully. Now, does that, is that good? It's like, what, well, yeah, okay. And then third time, boom, he went down. Now, of course, instead of popping back up and meta-commenting, he stayed and he stayed with his experience because that's what I wanted him to do, you see. It's not a question of, is it happening? It's a question of what is happening. And I want him to be connected with what is happening. So this time, the mofo goes, right? you know, he, he goes and he's fully absorbed. All the classic trance phenomena start to come up because he's just staying with the experience of being present and going deep into it. Now, here's the thing. All hypnotic phenomena are experiences that are happening in real time. The most important thing is that people are present in real time with what is happening, what is unfolding. Now, the more neurotic the hypnotist gets about whether it's the right thing or the wrong thing or whatever, the less present the hypnotist is. So that's likely through, I'm going to make up a term here, I heard it somewhere, limbic You know, we're going to lead non-verbally. We're going to resonate. They're going to resonate with us. If we're up in our head worrying about whether it's happening, well, don't be surprised if the client is. But here's the thing. If you accept that whatever happens, however it unfolds, is okay, what we're interested in is what's happening in real time. You can always bring people back there. Um, and everything's good to go. You're golden because something's always happening. The question is what? And how deeply are you willing to explore that with your client? Um, and sure, have an outcome. Sure, if you want to do a hand stick. Have the outcome. Have it clear in your mind. But use that as a signpost. Something that gives you a sense of direction, not as a target that you absolutely must or mustn't hit. Always remain present in the moment, present with the live feedback loop that's unfolding. And be willing to be deeply curious. Go in to use the metaphor deeper into the experience yourself. Bring them deeper into the experience themselves. Whatever the experience is that is unfolding 
in the moment and then you shape and you nudge and you steer it and you have fun with it and and for me that's that's the essence to um optimizing the occurrence of of quote-unquote hypnotic phenomena which incidentally i agree with adam what he was saying earlier it's not hypnotic phenomena it's just what's happening in the moment it's just the experience neurologically created that's my answer on that one James, I believe that there's some complete gold in that. Um, that's just there's, there's some brilliant, really good practical advice there on so many levels. Thank you. I've learned a lot from that. I'm really pleased that you answered the way that you did. Thank you. Thank so you. let's see. Let's see if we can uh, um, uh, get the same from young Anthony now. And how 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 do you go about improving hypnotic phenomena? It's a good question, actually, and. Um I'm quite happy to admit that, you know, when I was not just first doing this, because I've kind of always used some phenomena in the therapy room. That that was a good foundation for me, that idiomotor stuff into kind of challenge suggestions and occasionally, um, you know, using hallucinations and, and, and stuff like that to kind of uh, bolster my, my the efforts that were central to the work I do in therapy. Um, however... For the first few years when I was doing it, people either exhibited the phenomena or they didn't. And despite the efforts to kind of, you know, fractionate or just try it again or, you know, really mean it this time and all that kind of stuff, I found there was very little movement. People were getting it or they weren't getting it or they could do amnesia or they couldn't they may be able to have a smell hallucination but they may not be able to have a visual hallucination so my experience when it was was that it was pretty static obviously i was still kind of locked into a state-based model of things at the time um and that's one of the characteristics of the state-based model is <laughs> if they're not getting into state then they're not going to be able to do the rest of it um that obviously changed um when we came across the cstp and then gorosini's extension of it and again i appreciate that the cstp is not without its critics and a couple of the criticisms of it are that you know you're um you're actually changing their role you're it's no longer hypnosis you're actually just asking them to imagine stuff you're asking them to play along and things like that but if you look a little closer at it and again at the tightening up and the extensions of it um it's it's slightly richer than that so what seemed to help literally transform lows into highs and keep them there was you know and again i know i know you guys have heard all this stuff before but what seemed to help them was witnessing well, two things and you needed both was witnessing someone else um being taken through a bunch of suggestions many of which resulted in hypnotic phenomena being exhibited but as importantly was having some insight into what they were doing and what they were thinking and and stuff like that so um i think in the original version there was a video and then you watch the video with their commentary so you know oh yeah and when my arm was lifting i was imagining this and it was feeling like that and i was saying this to myself and that seems to help others um 
why does it help others? I think it helps others because it, it clarifies their role. I think often the difference between a high and a low or a good and a bad subject is simply that some people do the right things naturally. That's, that's how they imagine stuff or they have that kind of synesthesia between you know, thoughts and feelings that others don't or perhaps they just sit and wait. So that was the other thing from Gorosini is that 50% of people who you're trying to hypnotize do nothing. They sit and wait. That was a, that was a you know, major piece of the puzzle for me. It's like, right. So if I'm working with someone the first time and I don't have the luxury of a, a spare subject who can report on their inner experience, and generally I don't, although if I do hypnotize someone first and I have a group of people there, I will often interrogate them a little bit and and that will help sort of get rid of some myths and, miscon myths and misconceptions at the same time um the first thing that i want to do if i'm working one to one with someone is clarify their role so again these are words that i've kind of always said in one way but now i just lean on a little more so uh, i'm going to give you some instructions they're very simple if i ask you to imagine something i want you to do your best to imagine it and if i should find a feeling then get in touch with that feeling what i now add and again uh, my critics would say i'm just widening the goalposts um to the point where anything will, will fit is that, that this comes from the science is that the vividness the the realness the um, you know, the substance of, let's say, a hallucination isn't important. When we, when we interrogate those highly hypnotizable people and actually ask them about the substance of the thing they're seeing, it can be completely vaporous. It can be semi-transparent. It can not even really be there at all. But there's still this sort of congruency in that they still feel like it's there or they still find themselves responding as if. And again, that helped me because, you know, I was hypnotizing people for 15 years and I was a pretty poor subject. I, was, I had hypno envy. <laughs> and uh, my assumption when people were freaking out and, you know, I was invisible or, or, or whatever else was going on was that it, they just couldn't see me. I was invisible. Or when they had amnesia and they're struggling to remember their name and they're really getting frustrated with it and I'm pretty certain their acting's not that good, my assumption was, well, it's not there at all. The name is gone. And occasionally you hear that, but it's um, much more common when you ask highly hypnotizable people what things were like. Questions like, at any point could you see me or did your name go through your mind at any point to get yes but yes but it wouldn't register yes but it still felt like I couldn't see you yes but it was kind of like semi-transparent yes I could see you but it still felt like the glass was floating that helped you know after my initial sort of disappointment of oh you know could this just be explained in sort of social terms now was the you know if you were to see what you thought you know, looked like some sort of ghost, whether you believed in ghosts or not. If you were to see some semi-vaporous, barely there type thing floating in the corner of the room, 
and you rubbed your eyes and it was still there. You know, <laughs> it doesn't matter how, how much substance it has. So, so that kind of helped me a as a subject, and b it helped me as a hypnotist because. I stopped worrying about the vividness, and if you like, I started educating people about that aspect of it if I felt it was necessary. In performance, to be honest, it's not really necessary because I can cherry-pick my my subjects. The ones who just get it and get it right end up being the ones I work with. But if I'm working one-to-one, I want to kind of... um, and they also want to learn to be a better subject. They're actually trying to adopt the mentality that comes through in Adam's self-hypnosis book. You know, if it's if you're in a self-hypnosis class and you're you know they're just doing a visualization or a little walk along a path and you're either getting it or you're not, then you might give up. But if you recognise that you're an active part of this process, that you know it's collaborative in a sense, then you're, you're gently kind of reaching forward to how can I get better. And one of the ways you can get better is lax about the vividness and instead focus on this becoming a happening. Okay, and I, again, I know we all use that phrase now and again of turning doings into happenings. It's, it's, it really sums up for me what I'm attempting to do as a, a hypnotist or perhaps undo sometimes as a therapist is um, turn a doing into a happening so firstly you can improve as a subject if you recognize that it kind of ties into what James just said just wherever you're at playing <laughs> there or drift around there we'll work from there and again I think with the rapid inductions you know the reason some people just don't get it and look up and say hasn't worked I'm not there and some people do is that some people get the idea of oh well I'll just wait I'll just I'll just see what happens and that's why I'm always you know keen to encourage the hypnotist at that point to sort of carry on talking and to make this condition or this situation normal so um, that all helps a lot of what Gary said there are some points there I I haven't considered before but they immediately make sense you know we notice the big thing before the detail and stuff like that um, what I found really helps people is also again it is trying to tap into the fact that you're already hallucinating you know and I've been this a couple of times on online in forums and things one of the ways I go about it now is just to find something that's in the person's peripheral view and just say, you know, you can see everyone standing over there, right? You, know, you can see everyone's faces or, or you can see the pictures on the wall. Yeah? You know, just keep looking at me, not, not in any hypnotic way, but you can see everyone over there or you can see the pictures over there. So I get a kind of commitment from them that they can. And then I just say, now tell me, what can you really see? Can you tell me what's on that picture in the middle? Or can you tell me how many faces there are? And invariably they can't because their peripheral view is already weakening. It's, it's, it's not that it's disappearing, but it's, I imagine it to be like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. It's, it's, it's 
their imagination is having to do more and more to maintain that wall with the pictures on. I mean, all they need is a quick glance at it to kind of refresh that data, if you like. So I just try to keep people's attention focused on me. And I often actually start in the peripheral view with hallucinations. I, I call it coming down the chain. So the important bit, again, is the sense of that becoming a happening. So as soon as they commit to, well, I can't really see any detail, then I just say, well, what is there? And they may describe, well, this kind of a dark, blob and it, it it's blurred around it or something like that i then find i can very readily start suggesting that that becomes semi-transparent or that that starts to fade or that that starts to change color or that the edges are starting to to move so you know that's that's just one idea of how i kind of get into hallucinations using you know their existing kind of process if you look at some of the techniques we use in therapy where we ask people to identify a feeling and where is that you know and can you find its center can you find its edge it's the same kind of thing the, these things are easily manipulated because when when someone first answers it's very clear yes I can feel that pain here but as soon as you start to examine it it becomes a little abstract and it becomes uh, less concrete and it becomes easier to move and shift and shrink and turn and all that kind of stuff so a few different things there but um, the main thing for me is clarifying the person's role and adjusting their expectations so that they can at least for a time be a little more uh, accepting of you know the elephant in the room whether it looks like a real elephant well, it's just the outline of an invisible elephant. It doesn't make any difference. Is it still there? You know. So that's really all that's important to me is um, how much does this feel like it's just happening? And 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 again, if the person is involved to some degree, I recognise the collaborative nature. Um, then I might try and you know find out how they're involved, what they're having to do to make that happen. And again, this ties back into what we learned from the CSTP. There you go. I've just written three pages of notes just from that <laughs> alone. <laughs> this is absolute hypnosis gold um, so far from Captain James Tripp and the one, the only, the immortal um, Anthony Jacqueline. Adam, over to you. Because yeah, so when talk it comes about to being set up for a phenomenal. Definitely not. So, so um, um, a huge, huge amount of value there. And in order to add to, to, to add, you know, different dimension and, and additional value, uh, it's quite a challenge there. I, I would say that I, I think one of the reasons that, that the elicitation of hypnotic phenomena, so-called, is, is not as prevalent, uh, um, it's not used as much, um, is down to fear. I think that fear on therapists' part and hypnosis professionals' part, because they think elicitation of hypnotic phenomena is a reflection upon them. Um, it's a reflection upon them and their skills. I.e., mm. i.e., if if they don't if they don't act 
contextualize the outcome really effectively, um, then that somehow uh, means that I'm a poor hypnotist or I'm a poor therapist or something like that. So I think they would rather avoid that situation. Um, for me, it's it's absolutely avoided because it's not really framed as hypnotic phenomena or or a test or something like that. For me, it's a central part of the cognitive behavioral hypnotherapy model, for example. They're framed as and um, referred to as hypnotic skills. There's no fail or success. There's no you can do this or you can't. It is here is a skill for you to practice and become better at. And some people are likely to, you know, especially those that are that are perhaps predisposed to 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 this type of thing, um, um, we'll, we'll get it and, and really develop it early straight on. And other people might respond quite different. So unlike the, the Stanford scales, for example, where there is a series of tests, instead, each of those very same tests becomes a skill. Practice this, become better at it. Now, I use hypnotic skills training then as a central part of my work. So I elicit hypnotic phenomena with every single one of my clients right from the off. Not just because I think, you know, in line with the Colton skills training program, the CSTP, it, it advances it advances skills, it advances hypnotizability, again, so-called, but because for me, I get to conceptualize the entire model of hypnosis. So... The way, the, the way that my preferred uh, approach to therapy tends to conceptualize itself is, is ABC. So that is a lot of people turn up for therapy thinking A, the activating event creates C, the consequences. Okay, so going into the pub creates anxiety, social phobia for me. Whereas, um, whereas... Actually, it's A multiplied by B that creates the consequence. So, 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 so that is the, the activating event multiplied by the beliefs, the cognitions around, you know, you know the, the way in which the person perceives going to the pub that creates the consequences. In exactly the same way we conceptualize the client's problem in those terms... Because, i.e., we can now affect your beliefs, we can now affect your cognitions. You can conceptualize hypnosis in exactly the same way. A, the activating event, i.e., an induction or or a hypnotic phenomena, um, multiplied by your belief in it. You know, so i.e., I educate the client on on adopting the right mindset and approach towards it creates the consequences. C, which is the elicitation of hypnosis. Now. A real hero of mine, a, um, as a sort of flag bearer for the non-state movement, if you like, back in the 1950s, a man called Theodore Sabin, Ted to his pals. Um, Theodore Sabin was often referred to as Mr. Role Play, and um, he would teach clients to adopt the role. And, and one of his explanations of hypnosis in and of itself was adopt the role of hypnotized subject. You know, in NLP, that's like a, an, an as if frame or a pretend frame, you know, act as if you are hypnotized, think as if you are hypnotized. And it's likely to be a lot more readily available or actualized. If you read 
Or heck, if you look at um, some of the sort of Russian books on, on the origins of method acting, that's essentially what they're doing. There's a very interesting, quite existential question or discussion to be had in the pub about what's the difference between authentically acting happy and being happy. You know, and of course it, it can go on and on. But if people are really authentically acting happy, just as if they're really authentically acting as if they're in hypnosis, there's a good chance that it's going to be actualized more readily. If you read autobiographies of someone like my, my an acting hero of mine, Robert De Niro, um, you know, he, he talks about the time when during Taxi Driver, he became quite disenfranchised with the world in his real life. He became quite... Um, quite disillusioned with life as a result of, of adopting that role so readily. Um, if you ever read anything by Sasha Baron Cohen, for example, whenever he was film, filming for Ali G, during the breaks, he was still being Ali G. He wouldn't just snap out of character. You know, it's so important for him to adopt it so fully and embrace it. And what this sort of adoption of the role is is that it becomes less about what the therapist is doing and more about what the individual is doing. There's more responsibility, therefore, placed upon them to engage in the process. I've got to admit, you know, I, I'm a fan of the Carlton Skills Training Programme. Um, I love some of the terminology used by Spanos, you know, deceive yourself. I love that idea, you know, tell the client, I tell my clients, deceive yourself, create the reality for yourself, you know, don't just, don't just passively expect something to happen, make it, you know, reinvent your reality. You know, this idea, you know, I mean, one of the phrases that he used with regards to arm levitation, you know, deceive yourself that your arms a hollow balloon filled with helium you know when you truly engage in that thought and you make it your reality you invest belief in it then of course it becomes a lot easier to elicit that kind of uh, a response um as far back as the 1920s you know a real hero of mine who i i wax lyrical about all of the time emil kue you know he would talk about the effort error the effort error, whereby people try and invest too much will upon it, you know, where they would attempt to elicit the, the phenomena by really trying hard. And instead, you know, Kuwait would be able to convince yourself gently, just make it your reality, undeniably convince yourself, you know, just believe in it. So, you know, both well, all of you have talked about the, the use of your imagination. And I think that's that's. I think that's very clear, you know, engage the imagination, make it seem as real as you possibly can. But then also, for me, practice, you know, um, um, practice it. Mm. And, and rather than expecting a sort of passive lightning bolt up the arse and, and like, yeah, it's happened, it's happening all by itself and so on. One of the other things I quite like the idea of that I know lots of real purists or so-called uh, purists um, um, might think is not really eliciting phenomena whereby you know you, you you you're making a particular form of hypnotic phenomena you're starting off consciously but then you're convincing yourself that it's happening by itself you know of course we know the reality of it you know, and we're never we're unlikely to be able to to, to escape the reality that, that there are muscles driving this particular movement yet you know we we're, we're in a position to be able to to 
to, to alter our perception of the reality. Um, um, and I think, you know, Kev and Ant with the imagination model um, and the automatic imagination model, I really like that idea of, you know, imagine your arm floating, now imagine that you are not imagining it, for example, I think um, um, is, 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 is beautiful. Um, I think um, um, I've learned a lot from, from everybody that's gone before me and, and, and a lot of what I, I would have said has already been said. So um, um, that's probably about as much as, as, as I can say on that subject that's, that's fresh or in any remotest sense of the word. I think I learned a lot more just from the phrase hypnotic skills training. Yeah. It's like uh, collective shoulders are relaxing. Absolutely, hypnotherapists across the land. They realize, aha, <laughs> it's not something I do. It's something we, you know, kind of go after. It's it's such a good frame for this. It's not it's not wiggling out of you know the the, the possibility of it happening or not happening. It's just saying sometimes we need a bit more work, and sometimes we need to, you know like you say, adopt a role. Um, the difference between, you know, adopting a role of happiness and being happy, I would still suggest is, is, is the subjective point of view of, am I just doing this? Am I, am I putting a smile on and dancing around? Or am I caught up in the dance? And, sure. I, I, uh, I, I absolutely hear you on that one. And, and, um, uh, probably one of the one of the most useful experiences that I've had in my life to date was on a Dharma a Dharma retreat, um, and I I went to um, a group meditation. It was a sort of uh, it, it was a Zen Buddhist centered meditation, and it was going and the, and the focus of it was one of the eight steps to enlightenment, which was going to be around compassion, and two minutes of this one-hour meditation, the first two minutes were spent, we were asked to think of something that made us more compassionate or something that, that would cause compassion to arise from us, you know. Think of starving children or people worse off than you, for example. Then the remaining 58 minutes were about meditating upon the feeling that arose. So we would, we would meditate upon the compassion in and of itself. And the idea was the more familiar we became to that compassion, the more readily available it was to us in, in our non-group meditation lives. You know, so it would be around. We'd be more familiar with it. We'd know how to exact it. And it's likely to start happening in a more automatic sense. Thereby, you know, I think the more people act happy i'm not suggesting that, that that it's you know that it's useful to necessarily just put a brave face upon things you know i think that's probably a bit aesthetic perhaps a bit superficial of course but the more people practice the notion of happiness i think the more readily available happiness comes to them good i think it's really useful um I'm just going to jump in quickly and say i like to have people i like that frame of practicing and having people practicing stuff and I like, if I'm doing hypnotic processes, I like people to understand that we're not saying this is how things really are now, but we are practicing something. Mm. We're running, I often use the metaphor of, of uh, the, the, the nervous system, our neurology is like a musical instrument that can play different tones. And sometimes we've spent, and we combine certain tones we play 
into tunes and we get so used to playing the same tones and the same tunes that's who we think we are but we're not the tune we're the instrument so we can learn to play new tunes on our neurology so this is the frame that i will use and you know talked about pre-talk earlier uh, so as people don't think if i'm taking them through what i i hate the term i love the the the, the method the NLP new behavior generator, but I hate that term new behavior generator because it implies to people that we're going to do something to them, which is going to reprogram them. And from, from now on, because we did this reprogramming, duh, they are now going to be like this. And of course their state and their mood changes. So anytime it doesn't match what it looked like in the new behavior generator, there's a good chance they'll throw it out. But if they're, if they're clear that what you're really doing is you're just, rehearsing you're just taking their neurology through a new experience they're just learning to play a new tone on their neurology it takes off all that pressure for it to immediately appear in their life in every single situation where it's quote unquote supposed to so i, I really kind of resonate with that frame as well great i think that's been fantastic input from you guys um i mean I see correlations, expansions on, on all of our views there between us, common grounds. Um, I've, I've just learned so much from that. Thank you for that. I mean, we've just covered um, some workings underpinning the hypnotic phenomena, the philosophy behind the creation, the mindset that we need to hold, the mindset of the uh, uh, the subject, practical advice, procedures and hacks. I think there's some absolute gold in there. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you for a good question, Gary. We'll be back in just a few moments. Okay, we're back, and um, um, finally, we're handing over now to Mr. Anthony Jackwin. Thanks, Adam. Uh, I'm going to start with a book recommendation, actually, because it's what's prompted this question. I was on holiday last week in Pembrokeshire, and I normally dig a little deeper into the bookshelf when I go away, and um, pulled a book out that a guy gave me over 10, well, July 2006, I know that because he wrote a little inscription at the beginning of the book, and he was trained in psychoanalysis, I think he actually works uh, as a cognitive behavioural therapist now within the NHS, and does a lot of serious work. When we discussed you know, I had, a, I had a sort of decent amount of experience as a therapist by then. And um, I guess when I was talking about it to him, it must have sounded very process driven. And I'm quite happy to accept that, you know, a lot of a lot of the work I do kind of is process driven. Um, and he gave me a book. He bought me a book. He said it was his favorite book. And he wrote a little inscription. I hope this little book gives you an insight into what I believe is central to the work of therapy. It's a work I return to time and time again when I found, when I find I've lost my way. So I read through it pretty quickly because um, so much of the book was about Freud and those who followed him. And, and, you know, let's face it, certainly in our world, Freud is out. Um, and gets a bit of a battering. It doesn't even really get considered by many people anymore. And uh, that's that's it's been that way for a good twenty years now. Even in um, many schools of study of psychology, you know, feminists get worked up that he's 
you know, his 19th century Germanic sexism is, is, is too much to take. Humanists find it gloomy and discouraging and don't like the idea that we're a, a, a high form of animal um, rather than some spiritually transcendent being and, and sort of radicals find him authoritarian and perhaps disapprove of the, the power imbalance that existed. So I, I skim through the book. Upon picking it up again last week and reading it, it did exactly what his inscription kind of said. I'm so glad I, re I returned to it. And it did make me, I don't know, it just, it just enriched me somewhat. So the book is called Between Therapist and Client. It's by a guy called Michael Kahn, K-A-H-N. And I'd really encourage any therapist to read it and to try to not do what I did and just look past the fact that Freud is mentioned so often. Um, I was thinking about what I was going to, what question I was going to ask, and at one point the question shone out from this book: What makes what you do therapeutic? I put this up online earlier, actually, and Jürgen Rasmussen <laughs> immediately chimed in: Nothing. The term therapy presupposes that people's issues are mental illnesses. There's no reason for us to be part of the fraud. I hear what he's saying. Um, so if you want to change the word therapeutic for changeful or something like that, then that's, then that's cool. But it got me thinking, you know, what is it? Because I've witnessed many times and I've kind of provoked many times changes in people where it really was just a process. I'm just going to point, I've got five, 10, 15 minutes with someone, it's a kind of impromptu little bit of help. Um, and it seemed like there was barely any relationship there. It was, it was just, I'm going to point this process at this problem. Um, and very, very often it, it seemed to change, not every time, but very often it seemed to change. And sometimes those changes stick and sometimes perhaps they don't. But I, I'm guessing all of us have, have, have witnessed those kind of miraculous almost instant changes um i know even when i do more involved therapy sometimes i don't even i don't quite know where the change or what prompted the change where it happened where it kind of turned if you like so another thing i've kind of said now and again is that when i look at the variety of sort of standalone techniques even though we may use them in concert things like phobia cures and, and stuff like that. More and more, it seems to me that we're just asking the person to do it differently. We're asking them to do it differently and to do that differently until that differently becomes automatic and they look at you and say, I can't feel it. It's not so much about the submodalities and which ones we chose or anything else. So when I ask myself, what is it that makes what I do therapeutic, when I start to kind of peel away some of the techniques and some of the things that are not always necessary, um, it wasn't that I was coming up completely blank, but it's kind of, you, 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 you touch upon some of the sort of core principles that underlie techniques. If you look at Freud's published clinical work and his, his major legacy, it was perhaps that remembering things was therapeutic. Uh, even he would admit later that, that 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 wasn't enough always to liberate a client. Some of his followers, one in particular, 
a guy called Merton Gill believed that that wasn't enough, that re-experiencing is what's needed, that we learn our problems through experience and these must be transformed through experience. And again, some of the techniques that are common to hypnotherapists these days kind of do that. We, we look at it again or that we're asked to go over it and stuff like that. Uh, again, that often proved not to be enough and that then kind of developed in this more sort of dynamic or psychodynamic view, I guess, of the relationship being important, the re-experiencing taking place in the context of a therapeutic relationship. Um, now that brings us on to looking at the relationship and um, another book I know Adam's got on his shelf, I hope the other guys have too, is Essentials of Clinical Hypnosis and Evidence-Based Approach by Lynn and Kirsch. Um, full of inductions, hilariously. But um, it really clarified for me the value of the therapeutic alliance. And I'm, I'm certainly guilty of just passing over some of the... The, the, the sort of softer stuff and, and chasing the trail of techniques at times. But in this book, I mean, there are over a thousand studies related to the, the, the therapeutic alliance. They have found it crucial, not just to the success of therapy, but the bit that really wouldn't leave my thoughts was the therapeutic alliance accounts for the largest proportion of systematic variants in therapy. There's some uh, research by Wampold in 2001 suggested that. I couldn't ignore that. You know, the largest proportion of variance in therapy is down to this alliance. So some of it we've touched on today, actually. Adam's uh, discussion of the pre-talk. Things like providing a clear rationale for the therapeutic approach. That never really occurred to me as being important. It, it's really important encouraging positive expectancy there's many ways to do that it could be because they're referred it could be because you tell them of other clients it could just be you know your manner and attitude my father looks at someone and tells them you're going to leave here completely free of that problem there's no doubt in his mind even though he may know that that's not always the case and also priming the client these things seem to be important but the soft stuff that i've revisited terms that are here on so many websites and make me cringe a little but I'm now kind of warming to um, are things like genuineness you know perhaps that expressing a feeling that you have about the, 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 the relationship the client doesn't mean just telling them every thought that comes into your head but if something's interfering with, with therapy then express it and be transparent about it another one Again, uh, a very soft word, empathy. I think we all think we know what that is, you know, kind of to some degree entering the client's experience, hopefully not getting lost in it. But, and these things are very much, you know, uh, based on the work of Carl Rogers, obviously, genuineness, empathy, and this sort of unconditional positive regard. Again, these have all just been sort of buzzy little words. But one that's really stood out for me since um, reading this book and sort of taught me something about uh, it, so is is empathy. Why is it important, and 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 how is it expressed? Because it's not just sympathy, and it's not just me feeling what you're feeling. 
I've always kind of steered away from that. Why would I want to feel, you know, what this paranoid person is feeling or this terrified person is feeling? But the thing that's really shone out for me, and it's the only thing I really want to mention, is that the, the real value in, in therapy, what, what can make empathy, at least, therapeutic, is not just adopting the client's point of view and, and, and kind of um, feeling what they're feeling, but actually communicating that, letting the person know that that's what you're trying to do, you know, and it's very, very simple to do, and uh, although mistakes are easily made. The reason it seems that this is therapeutic is that as you're showing that you're trying to kind of gently grasp what this is about and how they feel and the nature of the problem, it encourages the client to do the same. It, it creates a kind of safe space for them to actually do the same thing. If you like, empathy teaches the client to be empathic, that, that they begin to gently grasp and try to articulate perhaps with, with more clarity what it is that the therapist is trying to understand. With regard to, you know, this positive regard, if you like, again, something else that, yeah, I, I kind of get that, you know, I'll, I'll see this person as a, as a pile of resources and, and capable of, of anything and having the resources they need. Kind of, again, little little lies, if you like, that, that may or may not be true, but useful presuppositions. I'm convinced now that, that one of the things that is therapeutic about what I do is just sitting there, being genuine, um, showing this effort to, to, to understand, and essentially just giving the message, I'm with you. I'm with you on this. Not I'm doing this to you, or I have the secret. Just as simple as I'm with you on this. So, a lot of words there to, to say that I'm getting into the soft stuff. Um, to try to help my client be, you know, who they truly are. I want to put it to you guys. Gary, I'd like to ask you first. I'm not talking yeah. about the therapeutic effect. I'm not talking about measuring it by result. What is it? about what you do that makes what you do therapeutic? Mm, there's a lot there. Um, I want to try and summarise that as quickly and succinctly as I can. Um, I see myself as a tool uh, that the client has already chosen, otherwise they wouldn't be with me. Um, so they've already decided that they need the change. So therefore, they're seeking, um, seeking a catalyst for that change. That is what I am. Um, so they come to see me. Uh, I'm a catalyst for change. Um, you know, I, I actually make a joke of it with my clients. I'm just a tool. And then we can make find the humour in that quite nicely. <laughs> uh, it's normally found very, very quickly. Um, and then it's, it's part of the, uh, I mean, that forms part of my, my rapport that I build with a client. I, I use if I've got a, a, a section suicidal depressive who came to see me with their psychiatrist, I'll as quickly as possible uh, let them know they can come and join me in a happy place. I'm not going to join them in their misery. Um, so I, I set the scene right from the word go. Um, so basically, I see myself as a catalyst for their change. Um, so 
the, 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 the therapeutic effects, of course, um, uh, is the changes that are taking place in that client. To, to achieve that, um, again, to recap on earlier, uh, we use placebo, we use the therapeutic relationship, um, and then I use Hebb's Law, the metaphor for you as a fire to get a wire together. Uh, and each of those, I guess, I use uh, different approaches. For example, for the placebo effect, um, I use and guide the client's beliefs uh, uh, for their own success. I do whatever's necessary to help to help play on that, to guide them. So when you say, yeah, you're definitely going to get success today, um, you know, sometimes that's appropriate to do so. Um, or even put it in the negative, don't think that you're going to get success today to start getting uh, NLP-ish with the words. Um, I'll play with placebo, I'll utilise it, fully understanding that placebo is a part of any, any, any change work that's being carried out. With the therapeutic relationship, uh, I let them know that um, I want the client's success, that their success is my success. So everything I'm there for today, everything I'm doing from the moment they arrive at my door um, to when they leave and then uh, and ongoing is designed to give them the success that they need. And I work with a client in a way that, that's appropriate for that client. So uh, I'll bend, ebb, flow, whatever's necessary for the client. Um, I look to develop trust that um, uh, they can trust in the work getting them to do, uh, the understanding that they have. Um, I, I, I get them to, to follow my line of thought the best that I can. I let them know that uh, I'm not going to tell them what they want to hear. I'm going to tell them what they need to hear instead. Uh, and sometimes that can be quite a powerful catalyst for change in itself. Um, empathy, I, I, I let them know um, that I can never understand what they're going through and what it means to them because they are the only people that can. What I can do is provide a structure for which they can provide their understanding to help us provide that catalyst for change. And then the last thing, of course, is, is, is the Hebb's Law. Um, I use my knowledge uh, and the, uh, you know, combine that with structure for the client will provide the understanding and I can target the interventions accurately to get the change. So, so for me to make the work that I do therapeutic, I, I utilize the placebo therapeutic relationship and Hebb's Law all to the best of my ability as appropriate to the client. Basically, I, I, I do whatever I feel is necessary for that client. Fantastic. You're like a multi-tool. <laughs> With army to, knife. Yeah, I had to get the word tool in there after the, uh, the, the the classic, I've got a large toolbox that Adam's <laughs> never let me forget. Every time he right. compares or mentions me, there is a large toolbox that I've got, a large tool. In I've got. So I had to get the word tool in there in a comedic style just to put a smile on little Adam Eason's face. <laughs> Uh, uh, the, Sorry the, for being so childish and trying to kind of put you off your stride there, Gary. I, I love, you know, love how deep my face and kept me on it. It was awesome, gentlemen. <laughs> I've got a client, so I now must bow out. I'm afraid. So, absolute. I want to say my goodbyes now. Absolute pleasure being on this podcast. I can't wait to hear what the other responses to this are. So, thanks a lot, guys. Okay. Totally, Gary. Cheers, Gary. Bye. Um. James, let's come to you and then we'll finish up with Adam. What is it about what you do that is therapeutic? Um, I, I, love, I love how, how, 
how deep and, and spiritual you were with your answer and then how childish and superficial you were with your, <laughs> <laughs> your messages to Gary. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to hold those two, those two aspects of self together like that. Um, so, yeah, I really like that answer from you, Anthony. And I, and I had a particular thing. I'm going to go with my answer that I was originally going to have, and it's a very simple answer. I think that, you know, we don't live in the world as it is. We live in the world as it occurs to us. How we're seeing something in a given moment, that's what dictates our response. That's what dictates our experience. And, and really the key to change is a, a transformation in the way that we're seeing something. I mean, a real change, not like we have a different intellectual theory about something or a different idea or something, but we suddenly see something different and we have that moment of like, oh, right, okay. You know, it, it's it's different. It's not what I thought. And this doesn't necessarily mean a conscious process where we're going, oh, my goodness me, look how different it is. But basically, when we, when we see something very differently, our experience of it is different, and all of the behaviors that just spontaneously emerge from that tend to be different. So that's where I'm always going. How can I uh, assist this person in shifting their mind? I use this term mind shifts, which was from a mentor of mine, Steve Chandler, which has always stuck with me. I also sometimes think of, of my work, I, I do what I call Sherlock Holmes coaching as well. Um, and, and by that, I'm listening. I'm very much interested in how is this person organizing their reality? How are they seeing things? So I want to I wanna hear that. I want to hear some things because, because that's where things need to shift. And I'm not saying I know better. I'm not saying this is better. You shouldn't think like that. You should think like this. There's a distinction which I got from George Pransky, uh, which is description versus prescription. And I, I don't like to do a lot of prescription with my clients, right? This is what you should do. This is what you should do less of that and more of that. I, I don't like to do that. But I do like to offer descriptions which help them see something in a different way, bring a different lens to it. And I'll often say to clients, I'll say, look, in this session, we're not really going to be changing anything, but I'm going to share with you some perspectives on some things, uh, which is the way I'm seeing this right now. And, and you just check in and you see whether this, this is a good fit for you or not. So I, I do that with clients. So I'm, I'm working on that level. But, you know, Anthony's stuff about the therapeutic alliance, I think, is powerful and, and is highly relevant i trained earlier this year with Steve Gilligan, which is somebody i've avoided for years i don't know why i avoided but i just stayed away from Stephen gilligan and somebody said you know you want to go check out Stephen gilligan i went online i found three days time he was doing a six-day training in croydon spontaneous last minute and it was it was quite personally transformational for me um it certainly changed very much the way i was related clients but it changed very much the way I was relating to every other human being in my life as well Stephen Gilligan's work he refers to as, as self relations therapy and there's a joke in that I know <laughs> um, you know but he's very much about relations and how stuff is met within the, within the client and how is the client meeting their own stuff what comes up from inside of them but also how you as the therapist or as the coach or the whatever you want, want to call yourself, you know, how do you meet what the client brings? 
What's the attitude? What's the energy that you meet it with, so to speak? Um, and and he's got this idea that, uh, about positive and negative sponsorship. We end up screwed up. Stephen Gilligan's got a big influence from Carl Jung and this idea that we have these primal um, energies in the archetypal, uh, you know, these archetypal energies in the collective unconscious. They want to come through. And as we grow, they come through and they're met by our sponsors, our parents, teachers, peers in different ways. They either get positively sponsored. A human, quote unquote, energy wants to come through. He gets positively sponsored and brought through into the world in a useful, productive way, or it gets met with negative sponsorship, which is like, don't do that, that's disgusting, you shouldn't do that, you need to be more like this, da, 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 da. So as we're growing up, how our stuff as it comes out is met and sponsored is, is huge in, in what shapes us in becoming who we are and how we are. And so, of course, uh, as a therapist, we're, we're looking at a lot of that stuff that may have been negatively sponsored and, and will continue. That negative sponsorship becomes internalized into people in self-relations therapy. And they're down on themselves. They've got a lot of self-hating going on. They hate this aspect of self. They're trying to cut this bit out and whatever. But if you can, if you can be a positive human presence in meeting what comes up from the client. And, you know, you've got this positive, this unconditional positive regard. The thing is with that unconditional positive regard, I always heard that, but, like, I couldn't see past sometimes when somebody seemed like they were being a complete idiot in their life. Right? It's just like, it's just, what you're doing is insane, you know? And I would be judgmental, and I would be had by my judgments, because I couldn't see beyond that. I try to. I knew theoretically I should do or whatever, but I, I just couldn't. But starting to see people in different ways, starting to see us all being part of a common human condition, you know, um, that, that everybody's felt fear, everybody's felt sadness, everybody's felt that they're not good enough. It's, these are common things. Everybody feels them. It's all part of the human condition. It's all part of being fundamentally and deeply human. So the question is, how do we meet these aspects? How do we bring them into the world? Um, so starting to see that the people are sharing a common condition, that helps me have empathy, but not in a way that I get lost. Another thing that Stephen Gilligan taught me, I learned from Stephen Gilligan, was about being able to remain in an expanded sense of self, not to collapse down against uh, around a particular feeling or a particular problem. That way you can have empathy. You can feel a bit. You can resonate with the client and feel a bit of their pain. But the difference is they've collapsed into a toxic trance around that pain. Whereas if you remain open and you remain in contact with the full totality of who you are, of everything else that is beyond that, you can create a broader expanded field in which you can meet this, this stuff that comes up. So I got a lot from... From, from training with Stephen Gilligan. Right. And then afterwards, I read his book, which is called The Courage to Love, which is a book I could not have read because of the title probably a year ago. You know, I'd have like, ee! you were talking about cringing, yeah. Anthony. That would have been like an utterly cringe-worthy title for me. Yeah. Um, and, but it's, it's frankly, I, I think it's a fucking good book. I think it was a, it's right. a really, really good book. And really brought a lot of richness 
to that aspect of my work, of how I'm, I'm relating to clients. I am about 10,000% less judgmental than I was before. I'm able to, to be open, to see when they're caught up in their pain. Before, I used to kind of be a bit like frustrated, like, you know, can't you see you're doing this to yourself? But now I'm like, of course, this is such a human thing. We all get caught in our realities. We all get caught in our toxic trances. We all get caught up in our thinking. And of course, when we're caught up in it, it seems like that's how it is. And God, I can relate to that because it happens to me. Yeah. You know, so, so that's an important thing. Another thing I, I just quickly say is I, I learned from, uh, from a guy called Rich Litvin, who's a, who's a coach in L.A., yeah. about coaching with 10% of your attention on your on yourself, on your inside. Now, I'd always been taught sensory acuity, the show's out there, you know, and your feelings are just mind reading. They're not, you know, they're not, it's not about the client, that's about your stuff. And I'd learned this clean language stuff about keeping separate, keeping your own, your own stuff out. But I learned to start bringing some of my own perspective in, not to say this is how it is, but to allow what comes through me to be a more proactive part of the conversation I'm having with the client. You know, so I'll say oftentimes, look, I'll tell you how this looks to me. This is, this is what I'm seeing or this is what's coming up for me right now. And I'll share intuitions and hunches, but I'll make sure that they're offers. They're not like content impositions. This is what's coming up for me right now. And that's really, I think clients see me as a lot more human because sometimes the stuff that comes up for me is about me and I will share it. You know, well, that, some- is the, that is the genuineness. I mean, that's the, that resolves that kind of discomfort you had before when you're sitting there thinking something but thinking you know I should really be interpreting unconditional positive regard in this way what you've just said kind of resolves that you're, yeah. you're, the, the, the relation what one way Carl Rogers put it um, in this book is we're different from surgeons mm. you know a surgeon can can be dispassionate you're just you're just meat for him to for him to do his thing on we're not doing therapy in the way a surgeon is we are the therapy and again we're making it safe for clients to kind of explore their their deepest nature if you like by this, uh, what you've just described they're just kind of being open and how are you meeting them is it's great i look forward to going over your words again there yeah, and I, I would strongly recommend Stephen Gilligan's uh, book, The Courage to Love. Um, the title would have definitely put me off, but it's it's a very good book. Um, Great. It's a lot of value. And if you ever had the chance to spend some time with Stephen Gilligan, do his trance camp, the guy really knows how to be with his client. Like it, yeah, well, I've never seen anyone do that so well, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah well, that's yourself and Jürgen that fully endorse the guy now. So, uh, right. If nothing else, I'll try and get him to change phenomena one year. But uh, I'll try and grab onto his training in his book as well. Sounds good. Thanks cool. for that, James. Adam, what is it about what you do that's therapeutic? Um, um you, you know, really, I, I, I was absolutely there, um, and and have not really had much opportunity to properly tend to my own response to this because <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm so, so I, I genuinely so engage, and, and I'm guessing. That's um, um, that's that's part of what, what what you've both kind of alluded to in some way. Um, um, probably on a more sober sense, um, um, I would refer to active listening. Um, 
Mm. One of the best books I ever read on rapport was by a guy called Robin Dreek, um, D-R-E-E-K-E. Um, and I can't for the life of me remember the title of it, but um, I, I, I will refer back and, and let everybody know. And Robin Dreek was an FBI behavioural specialist um, um, who would, uh, uh, who in the end was, was teaching FBI agents and students how to deal with hostage situations and how to develop uh, productive relationships and all kinds of things. And would talk about active listening as being, you know, absolutely giving somebody your attention and not thinking about the next thing you are going to say, you know. But abs- And so active listening was something that I was very keen to talk about. But I think, you know, you, you guys have probably given a better account of that than I was going to. So if I just back up a little bit... Um, and and uh, again, be a little bit sober about this because the entire frame, you know, the entire framework, calling something therapy, setting up the the context whereby someone is coming to see an other person in order to to get help. I think that in and of itself starts making, starts creating this concept that we know as therapy, just just framing it so, just knowing of it so, just knowing there's going to be a number of different behaviours that we'll, that we'll start engaging in as a result of this thing being therapy. Um, in a lot of evidence, um, a lot of studies, very often a control group is, is a waiting list. And the reason that a waiting list is used as a control group to measure against is because very often when people are just put onto a waiting list, they start to get better than if they were not on that waiting list. That is, they they start to recover or they start to feel better in themselves because of the anticipation of something getting better. So I think it would be I think it would be would would be foolish of me to to think that. Um, the entire framework, the entire notion of and the expectation of going to be helped or, or, or going to, to receive guidance or, or, or therapying, however we refer to it, the, the frame in and of itself, I think, starts to make it therapy. Um, right. Moving in a slightly different direction, I think also an education about the human condition Um but being able to learn about oneself differently. That is um, one of the ways in which I discuss and talk to my clients about the reason for doing stuff like journaling thoughts or using thought forms, for example, very practical exercises for, for cognitive restructuring and cognitive disputation, for example. One of the ways in which I describe using thought forms and the value of it is that the brain, the mind, both are fantastical things and when a thought is just left to rattle around inside of the head it becomes sort of exponentially more it becomes worse for example more fantastical whereas when something is then written down it becomes almost vulnerable if you like I recall working with a client who I refer to often and saying to him, you know, tell me about how you do your depression. If we had to take you off the planet for the day, um, explain to me how I would do it in your place. And he he spoke about it and talk, and I made some notes. And when he finished talking, I said, OK, so in order to do your depression, I need to do ABC. And he said, 
no, 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 Adam, it, it's more than that. I said, right, okay, okay, you know, apologies, perhaps I've not been paying enough attention, explain it to me once again. And he explained it to me, and I wrote stuff down, and I said to him, again, you know, well, well, in order for me to do your depression, then I need to do ABC. And he said to me, no, it's much more than that. And, you know, this could have gone on. This could have been batted backwards and forwards to, to, for, for eternity. The truth of the matter was it was not more than that, but it felt as though it was more than that because the experience was was, you know, he was so in it. He was so engaged in it. And so I think what starts to make stuff therapeutic is, is the simple process of educating about the human condition, educating and offering up a different perspective about what's going on and giving them an opportunity to see themselves from a distance, getting themselves to, you know, um, 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 to distance themselves. What was originally the original notion of catharsis spelt with a K was very different to Freud's description. Freud actually misinterpreted a lecture given by Kant um, on the notion of catharsis and catharsis actually originally meant to distance ourselves to be able to look at things objectively you know the Dalai Lama refers to this as well i.e don't don't set goals for yourself when you've just when you've just been through a acrimonious divorce for example you know um because Emigrating to Australia that day may seem brilliant, but once you're there six months later and you've had a chance to soberly reflect upon it, you know, you may be ruining that decision that you made in the height of emotions. So being able to experience oneself objectively, I think, starts to make stuff therapeutic. And certainly for me, it does. So people are beginning to learn about themselves. And I think, you know, the, the, the third wave if you like, of cognitive behavioural interventions. Anthony mentioned it earlier on. Um, um, is, is with, with, you know, so rather than cognitive disputation, rather than Socratic questioning, um, with regards to disputation and restructuring of cognitions, something more like acceptance has become has become more readily available. You know, being able to accept and give yourself the space to have certain feelings. And what what all of that is doing is is it's becoming metacognitive, you know, it's becoming a thought about our thoughts. They're becoming thoughts and reflections upon our feelings. And I think that is what starts to make stuff therapeutic. And I just want to refer back and I do want to dip into a couple of the points that you made and, and, and I'll start bringing myself to an end there. I recently read what I would consider to be an absolutely brilliant book by Seth Godin called The, the Icarus Deception. Yeah. And um, um, he talks about, you know, our work becoming art so, so that we create art. But um, um, that's sort of digressing. Um, um, he talks about that, that right now, the world, the existence we are living in, the time that we are in, um, we have more connectivity or potential for connectivity than ever before at any point in history. And what I love about being a therapist, and one of the things that I crave even about therapy, is I love the connection with the people. I think people in general, where whereby the internet, for example, connects us so much, I think it also has divorced 
so many other other people from one another because it's not it's not the kind of connection that occurs in hypnotherapy so just kind of dipping into some of your points that you made about you know the establishment and the the, the therapeutic value of the, the the therapeutic alliance you know it's in particular with hypnotherapy that could be so utterly intimate you know beautifully intimate requires lots of trust and that good working alliance um, you know evidence would tend to suggest that if you've got a brilliant and effective working alliance, you could start whacking the client with a wet fish, as long as it didn't affect, detrimentally affect the working alliance, and it would have therapeutic benefit. So, you know, regardless of the kind of intervention that you're doing or the poor choices you could potentially make as a therapist, having that relationship is, is, is likely to, to create therapeutic gain. And I do want to make... Um, a distinction here between rapport and working alliance. I think rapport is much more along the lines of liking one another, enjoying one another. A working alliance, you don't have to agree with that person. You don't have to like them even. You can disagree with them and still have a really effective working alliance born out of respect, born out of an ability to to, to, to appreciate and, and perceive that person as credible and that you are safe in their hands, for example. I think those are the sort of central components that, that, that make what I do therapy or therapeutic. Um, you know, I, I also think certain, certain themes could be discussed till the cows come home with regards to provocation and, and so on. But I think, I think that's probably all as, as much as is useful for me to say on that for now. Brilliant. I really enjoyed that. I can't wait to listen back to both your answers the book that you mentioned i think um the title is it's not all about me yes it is it is that's yeah. it uh, robin Dreek. Uh, it, it's exceptional very small you read it in one sitting um but utterly valuable yeah i certainly read the icarus deception in one sitting that was awesome <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was fantastic really i'm, I'm game changer for my business as far as yeah. that was concerned yeah okay great great james anthony and of course, Mr. Gary Turner, my heartiest of thanks for your involvement today. On a final note then, I hope you enjoyed this bumper and special 30th edition of Hypnosis Weekly. I think there's a lot of information and value offered up in there. And to repeat, all the websites for all of my guests this week are posted at the episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I'll be back next week and we'll be discussing sports applications of hypnosis with hypnotherapist and sports specialist Glenn Gowdy. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions. So do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else and really help us reach the hypnosis field. Thanks again. Um, you know, my heartiest thanks again go to the very wonderful Anthony Jackwin, James Tripp, Gary Turner and thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.